Welcome, welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind. Two crickets and a thorn tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer. As ever, joined by the other half of your co-hosts, Mr. Gabriel Crozar. Who lost his voice earlier this week, I believe. I wanted to redo two crickets and call it Freedom Whispers. <laughs> <laughs> I And as I said to you at the time, I am... Um, I'm not quite sure if the world is ready for uh, two crickets, the ASMR version, or, or, or freedom whispers. You know, it's it's a little bit too intimate. Freedom whispers. <laughs> I think. I think though you might be onto something. I don't know if you've ever come across this online, but there's this this whole genre of like people uh, cutting hair or whispering into your ear or tapping on things, or just like sort of making kind of pleasant background noises. Um, or some people find them very uncomfortable, intimate background noises. And these videos get millions and millions of views from lots of people. It's turning into quite a huge industry, which is quite fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's sort of, um, is it that much of a surprise? Yeah. It, I, I, I think a couple of, maybe last episode even, I, I, I recommended White Lotus, um, sort of well-written TV show about trying to go on holiday, have a good time. And uh, in the first of two seasons, um, one of the scenes is these sort of girls, these teenage girls do quite heavy drugs with each other and then do then ASMR each other. So it's like, you know, smoke a bit of a joint, pop some pills, and then sit on the couch, kind of whisp- kind of like, you know, scrunching a tea bag in your friend's ear. <laughs> so that they can hear the sound of the tiny little tea leaves moving around in the silk sachet. And you know, I think I think it's safe to say that no one in 1980 thought that this is what the year 2023 would be like. <laughs> well, it's odd that you should say that because exactly what it what it what it what it made me um, recall is how, uh, in a sense, limited our avenues of uh, exploration are. Um, right. I think that uh, when you know. Fancy pants, you know, bohemian dudes in advertising and, and the art world and, and the entertainment world and sort of hedonistic uh, Thompson-esque journalists in the 80s were going to the hottest parties and, you know, popping a pill, snorting some lines, you, uh, maybe, you know, hitting a, a, a tab of acid or something. I, I, I don't think it was um, outside of the realm of something to do. In fact, I kind of think that uh, well, the notion of my... like smelling candles and yeah, yeah. You know, someone, uh, t- 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 you know, uh, p- patting your earlobes with a with a with a soft earbud so that it's you know, but it like resonates like a drum. You know, this the, these kinds of things I think probably have been um, I, not forever, right? I think if you go back to Roman times or medieval times, it's hard to imagine people having a party where, although, 
Although, you know, like little <laughs> tiny, gentle, tinkling bells, you know, you get kind of wasted and they, and they, you know, maybe they did have some hallucinogens and stuff like that. Like the most elite decadent parties, you're, you're up in the club and, you know, some ladies playing a flute with two stems and uh, some other lady is like <laughs> tinkling tiny bells in your ears as you slumber in a near comatose kind of opioid right, so i think state. i think i think that's kind of kind of my point is you know i i've been thinking a lot about 80s movies recently um and uh particularly blade runner and you look at their per- perception of the future basically now right i think the first blade runner set in uh, 2019 and they imagined it wouldn't be familiar they imagined a future that wouldn't look really anything like their own time um and it's just kind of interesting to see how they were if you transported someone from the 80s here they would be surprised by a few things but i think they would also be like this isn't what is advertised as as that uh it's almost become a bit of a meme now uh the where is my flying car thing yeah you know, yeah yeah of course, you know, people upset that we don't have flying cars. By you know, we're well past many of the dates in which the sci-fi of previous decades promised us flying cars. I think I told you the story in that context. Like um, when I was a teenager, I had this dream um, that I uh, finally cracked the flying cars problem, um, and uh, you know, it is it is. Uh, shortly before launch and uh um we were very excited and i was being called by politicians who you know they all kind of wanted to be there um because in fact what i'd done is i had you know designed um a cost effective and safe and uh, efficient flying car and uh, and 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 sold the patent for that for like more than anything had ever been sold for before. But but I kind of realized that that's not really where the big money is. The really big money and power is in uh, building the necessary infrastructure for the roadways, um, as it were, the you know, the airwaves, because you My still waves. have huh? flywaves. You still have traffic uh, concerns, right? People in densely populated cities um, need to be flying around according yeah, to certain you can't, rules. You can't let it just be Mad Max, or else, man, that would be exciting. But oh boy, yeah, you know, you you want this to be the kind of thing someone feels safe to do on a daily basis. So um, I realize you're going to have to have these sort of permanently hovering uh, sort of traffic lights. Um, they don't work like our traffic lights. You, you know, there's there's a bit of a red, green, orange kind of thing. But you know, there there are also beacons. You know, like if you're you've got to fly below this height in order to be going that fast and above this, and and kind of uh, on ramp, off ramp, sort of designated zones. You know, like between these two beacons, or with you know, go through this hoop, as it were, to 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 then take the the route down uh, back to town. Um, and uh, and it's kind of funny because I, you know, um, anyway, it's sort of early onset classical liberalism. I kind of uh, in my I dream I realized. Condition. That, yeah, <laughs> well, actually, I'm not sure. I think one can regress, but I, I realized that 
you know, I was really keen on, on making money in that sphere. I thought, why is this the place to make money? Well, because if you make a flying car, the first flying car, it goes out, people want to buy the first car, but it's like making the Ford Model T, right? Ford is no longer the dominant car company um, because people can buy from the competition and some other guy is going to see better ways. You know, I've kind of spent so much brain power just figuring out how to make a really good, efficient flying car. Like there are little marginal benefits that I haven't seen. But if we can get the government contract, if we can get the whole North American government to to buy from our company the tech needed to keep these um, little you know traffic lights hovering in the air, like we are set. We are so in the money and in power because they you know want our blessing. And so it's like the day before the launch, and these politicians, opposition politicians, the president, you know, local governors, mayors, like I'm getting all these phone calls because they all kind of want to be standing right next to me at the moment that the launch happens. They all want the, the to be in the center of the aura, the, 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 the prestige halo. And I'm kind of playing them off of each other and using this as, you know, well, you guys in this state only gave us the contract for the lights, but not for the sort of, you know, uh, docking beacons. Uh, so I'm just afraid you're not welcome. And then he's like, no, 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 we can renegotiate. <laughs> anyway. You know, so yeah, yeah. This sounds like someone who had a dream <laughs> that they were going to become a billionaire by revolutionizing dry cleaning. <laughs> Explain. It just, it just, it's like, the, it's like imagining uh, 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 something like a really sexy concept, but then the most boring version of it. <laughs> right. I don't think you're listening. So the, the thing I'd already made, I was already a billionaire. Um, and okay, okay. the thing that was exciting was, which I'm not sure I see in the dry cleaning example, although maybe you can explain, um, was, was having the president uh, waiting on, on the phone um, while I was speaking to the governor and the leader of the opposition and getting them to make concessions um, in order to uh, sort of get through to me. Um, right? Well, no, I'm just talking generally about uh, being in that, in that sort of high power position of, I mean, what, what modern nation state doesn't need dry cleaning, uh, of being able to wheel and deal and have people fall at your feet. Yes, yes. I, I don't know that, I suppose, sort of laundering, money laundering, maybe dry cleaning. I don't know that politicians <laughs> do do that. But and part of and part of what I was um, interested in was leveraging them to make concessions that I thought were in the public interest. Um, and but, you know, I had this dream like 15 years ago. I can't really remember what it was. Gay marriage or, you know, uh, uh, what excited me at the time. Um, uh, as something that I, I want think to that could make a really yeah. exciting um, uh, political novel, actually, where some sort of businessman who, just as you say, invents some sort of new technology and then leverages it very specifically for some radical social change. That's unpopular, super unpopular. Right. I, I mean, mean, I think that political I, drama right in there. I, I think that's how they. That's how they. Yeah, that's how most of them go in a way. Um, and anyway, the, the, the really weird thing about the dream was that um, I realized while I was going through these conversations, because some of these politicians had kind of soured against me 
and had sort of tried to bet against this politically. They were like, this is not going to work. This is inefficient. This is like very fancy. And they had gotten their um, scientists to try and sort of research, you know, economists to, to, to produce negative uh, information campaigns. And I was having one of these conversations and like I realized something, I connected dots that were already there that no one else had connected. And it made me realize this is not going to work. That actually the underlying insurance model isn't quite right. That there's a, a liability problem because the most expensive thing that we had to put up. And in fact, the thing that was being launched was um, ended up being like a web some kind of electromagnetic web above the city so that if there was a major accident, the cars wouldn't fall down. And because the cars needed very, very intense, like, you know, tiny fusion engines um, to be powerful enough to do all this kind of stuff, if one crashed, it would destroy a very large city block. And um, the, the, I realized that, that between the, the physics... And, and this is very expensive, building a le an electromagnetic web that's going to cover a whole city. And the government has to pay for it. And this is where the, you know, even bigger money than the beacons comes from. And, and I realized that, like, there's something about how that web worked and something about how the insurance system worked that it just wasn't going to work. This is just going to create a, you know, it's going to be fine for a month, but someone is going to crash into someone else. And... At the same time, there's going to be another accident. And the first accident is, is not going to fall through, right? It's going to, it, it, the, the web will catch it, but the web will right. be damaged. And the second one, yeah. And the break. second one will get okay. through. And that is going to destroy a town block. And that is going to bankrupt the insurance company immediately because it doesn't, because the liability is so hectic and everyone's so litigious. And that is going to create kind of bad press and it's going to stop the adoption momentum that's necessary in order to get, you know, this thing is only going to be profitable once a hundred million people are using it and you're going to get 10 million people out the gate. And then you, you know, you need every week for another 10 million people to be taking this on because it's so new and exciting. And, but like, I, like I did the calculation by, by week four, you're bound to have two accidents in a row. Uh, and you're not going to have reached critical mass yet. And it's going to create, um, sort of enough of a negative press cycle and a, enough of a serious negative financial moment that is going to go crash. So then on the one line, I'm like phoning all these politicians, like, you know, doing these trades and like really amping up the money. I'm like, okay, never mind the political concessions. I just need the money because I'm starting to think I need my war chest to be full so that I don't get sued into bankruptcy. And like, never mind gay marriage. You don't have to say you like gay marriage. It's okay. I wanted that, but you can keep saying you hate gay marriage, but just double the price that you're going to give me if you want to be in camera when, when the glory moment hits. And, and on the other phone, I'm like just telling dudes to like sell all my shares in the insurance company <laughs> and like sell all my shares in the, in the web company and sell all my shares in the, in the car company and stuff. And then I woke up. I mean, it was like, I was, I, I was totally I can't say, panicked. <laughs> I can't see how I've ever had a dream about defrauding a continent. <laughs> yeah, no, that was my dream. I was like, I need to defraud a continent so that I can, uh, you know, and I couldn't tell even in the dream, like, am I doing this because 
I think I need the resources afterwards to 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 be able to salvage something good out of this. Um, do I still believe in myself, or do I just need it to kind of um, satisfy my ego and my my preference for comfortable living and all that kind of stuff? But it, I mean, it was like a very horrible. It it was a very horrible dream, and I sort of woke up with this. Um, sort of cautionary sense about trying to maximize money and power and so on. But anyway, so I, 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 I very I, much felt that. I just that... have dreams about being squashed by rocks mostly. <laughs> yeah. No, look, I have, I, I, I have a lot of those too. Um, but, but anyway, the, the reason I brought it up is flying cars. Uh, when I was 15 or 16 years old, I, I, I had the sense that like flying, flying cars are kind of a bad idea. Like, like a perfect example of like, thank God we don't have flying cars. Ever since then, my sense was, thank God we don't have flying cars. Um, and and then ten years later, uh, you know, in the in the mid twenty teens, there was it became or in in twenty ten around then it became very meme to say, you know, we were promised flying cars, but we got one hundred and forty characters. That was like the first truly meme diss against yeah. the internet. Um, and I, I was like, oh, it's a bit, it's, it's catchy, but it's, I feel like it's misplaced because flying cars are that ex- are such a good example of something that's individually fabulous. Um, but in a system, it's kind of garbage. Yeah, you, you, it's like shit. Hell's holy moly! You know how how many steps does it take to get it to work in a way that it's not either a a traffic jam or b like um, really. Uh, life-threatening sort of right basically it's it's all just an extension of the fantasy that people want to be able to fly it's the same with the jetpack the hunger for the jetpack uh which is which is as of yet unsatiated although there every year someone tries something with a jetpack um i'm I'm pretty sure there was a french guy who crossed the english channel recently with a jetpack yeah i think the jetpack they're doing pretty well and you know for like there are I it does seem to me like um, jetpack sports is going to be in our lifetime is going to explode for sure. Um, but I don't think the itch will truly be satisfied until you can buy one and fly to work with it. You, I disagree because I think that the itch with the jetpack is 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 this is this primal. It's so amazing to fly in your dreams, right? Um, itch. And and it's a sporting, it's an athletic thing. It's like you want to feel that superpower. I don't think it's a daily uh, uh, convenience thing. I mean, I'm not I'm not against. For example, you know how many people want to ride a motorbike to work every day? It's it's undoubtedly much more like um, the jetpack uh, experience than being in a car. I mean, sometimes, sometimes for sure. But like on your on your daily. Uh, it's the same with food. You know, there, there are some meals that you want to have uh, once in a blue moon to just blow your mind. But you don't want to have that every day. Uh, there are other things that you, you kind of want to staple. Um, and I feel like the, 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 the flying jetpack thing, the, the itch there really is for a special adventure more than for a daily, daily commute. Daily commute, mm-hmm. I think people are, are kind of content to, um, you know, switch their brains off, really. You know, it's like quite satisfying to be in your car and listen to a podcast or the radio or be in a train or a bus. I mean, I think that, you you know, because when people go to work, 
they have to wake up earlier than they like and uh so one's 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 brain isn't really it's not a great time actually to deal with adrenaline and um uh, to be very sensitive to beautiful views uh like <laughs> I don't know. One of my favorite lines from Mad Men was uh, these the the two main you know the, the main dude Don Draper and his uh, sort of boss Roger Sterling in an elevator early in the morning uh, going up eighty stories to work in uh, the, um, in New York City and uh, the boss guy says you know I woke up like four a.m. this morning and I watched the sunrise and. Uh, the other guy says, oh, and how was that? And he says, boring. <laughs> you know, that's what it's like to wake up early and go to work. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, you're on the hundredth story of a Manhattan building watching the sunrise over the center of, you know, global finance. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, could, could be worse. Um, should we talk about some politics in SA? I've just yeah. got one thing that I've been thinking about recently. Uh, so the DA seems to be throwing a lot of its cards behind a march to Latuli House, which they are calling, quote, the scene of the crime, which is, uh, I think, a good phrase. Very good line. Yeah. Um, to protest. It's kind of, I, I think this this part is, is I'm not sure if, if it was. Anyway, they've combined the issues of the tariff and load shedding together. And I guess they are connected, right? Because ESCOM needs the tariff increase because it's so badly run. But anyway, um, they seem to be throwing a lot behind this. Uh, I've actually encountered ordinary random people who say they want to go, um, which is unusual uh, for, for, I think, some of these political party marches. Who knows how big it will end up being. But um, I think the news headline on the day is going to be the same thing that happened last time the DA tried to march to the Tuli House, which was during the Zuma years, when a very big, angry crowd of ANC people um, uh, opposed them with bricks and tasers and things. And two blocks from the Tuli House, they had to be uh, diverted to avoid some sort of titanic clash. Um, there was still some violence, but it was uh, mostly headed off. And uh, I see the the ANC Youth League has already promised to, what was the phrase they used? Um, meet them there and peacefully guide them to ESCOM to see where the real source of the problem is, and also Praveen Gordhan. <laughs> so um, I've kind of been wondering, you know, how this is going to shake out for them politically, or if this will be something that actually, you know, because it's, I feel like, you know, the DA is often kind of playing catch up when it comes to like setting the political agenda sometimes. And I wonder whether in this moment when everyone is so annoyed about load shedding that this march might um, cause something interesting to happen rather than just the usual. What do you think? Yeah. I, so I think that um, frustrated people, for people to be really gloomy and frustrated, is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for a really successful march. Um, and, you know, this is like, I think last week we were talking about, you know, the, the general, my, the, my big worry for 2023 is in the winter, 
you've got such a gloomy set of circumstances. Um, you've got a very dry powder keg, as it were. And then the question is sort of what is the match that lights off a kind of mass violent pseudo-insurrectionary type, you know, KZN type uh, thing. Um, and it could be xenophobia. It could be a Zuma issue. It could be um, uh, strikes that, you know, anti, anti-employer anti uh, issue, um, etc. So... So I think the DA is is doing a has has done a good job of identifying a pretty clear source of grievance um, in 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 the sense of load shedding, but you know how far does one succeed in directing the blame at the ANC? The ANC has uh, traditionally been a difficult target. It's been much easier to march against a figure within the ANC. So they've been pro and right, anti-Zoomer marches. As the ANC is trying to do, right, with its counter-protest. Yeah. Um, but this time, but, 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 and this is why I think, I, uh, it, it, so it's a necessary condition for uh, South Africa's demographic uh, development for people to start for more people to think in terms of ANC or not ANC rather than uh, this guy in the ANC or that guy in the ANC you know for to become a truly multi-party democracy in the sense of like different parties have had a chance of leading the country um, that change needs to be made so so, so it needs to work. At some stage, it needs to work. At some stage, there needs to be a march that's that's kind of like an anti-ANC march rather than an anti-Zuma march. And um, this has always seemed to me like the clearest... Uh, and by the way, a sibling, whose name I shan't mention, of a former leader of the DA with whom I've discussed this. You know, it's just so obvious. Load shedding is so obviously the issue. That, that you don't need to explain as being really problematic and as being somehow connected to the government and the government's been run by one party uh, over many, many years. It's the, you know, wh whoever the leader of the party is, it's the party that's screwing things up. So I think, I think in that, in all, in all of those senses, it's really good. Um, it does feel a little bit like, I mean, from my perspective, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, since July last year, the Institute of Race Relations has been running this campaign to... Um, to fight load shedding by cutting out BEE, you know, to, to, to take a meritocratic approach to, to uh, energy, to empowerment um, in South Africa. You know, what's the thought? Like to really empower someone, like one of, one of the, one, what does empowerment mean? Like, well, do you have the power to, you know, you, you put, you've, you've gone ahead and you've managed to get a laptop, you've bought the laptop or you've gotten a scholarship or you've gotten a secondhand laptop or whatever it is you want to write you want you want to write something on excel or you want to write something on word you want to do something make a powerpoint presentation well are you empowered in a sense is like well you're halfway there you're capacitated but you're not empowered unless you can plug the thing in and get some power into it you know load shedding seems like such straightforward disempowerment uh to me and you know, to 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 really get uh, 
you just care about black people to get you know a broad-based black economic empowerment uh you know sounds like what you really need to do is get you know lots of cheap electricity everywhere um and if you if you're non-racialist and you care about all people and particularly uh you know helping those most in need um then you come to the same practical conclusion of, of what needs to be done so you know there's there's kind of you know a minute and a half on 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 why it makes sense to say uh whether you're a racialist or a non-racialist um that escom should be buying electricity as cheaply and as efficiently as it can uh from whomever uh, japanese uh dudes know how to make a part uh and no one else does you know you buy the part from them at the cheapest price you don't uh, buy it from some local dude who has started a shell company which really just imports that and then sells it to you at a 20% markup because they've got uh, some political they've got some points on some political scoreboard because that makes for more disempowerment that extra 20% means there's less electricity you can make so okay um, you know my sense is that it, it's it, like in a, in a way it feels like a pretty successful campaign uh, we got Andre Dereta on air saying that. Um, uh, what was the phrase he used? He, he had a whole thing about non-value adding impediments to intermediaries. Some- David asked him, you know, the IRR is campaigning for uh, SCOM to be exempted from BE considerations and procurement. Uh, what do you think? And he said, yeah, dude, you know, uh, we need to get rid of uh, all non-value adding intermediaries because uh, doing so would increase the speed of the supply chain, increase the reliability of the tr- supply chain, decrease corruption, because uh, wherever there's discretionary spending on non-maximum value for money basis, you get uh, more opportunities for, for graft. Uh, uh, we Such exemptions were granted. The Minister of Finance made really positive notes pretty clearly in response to some of our letters. In his budget speech, he got rid of all of the public procurement uh, four days ago. Um, those new regulations on procurement came into effect. So now ESCOM, without um, needing to apply for an exemption from uh, the Minister of Finance and every other organ of state, can go ahead and uh, do so. Uh, can can implement a non-BE policy. Can just go for a for a for a much more straightforward kind of. Um, either needs-based points consideration, or they can do you know points consideration in the way that the IRR has kind of considered to be the right way to do it, if you're going to do it at all, uh, for, for a decade, uh, which is to say, you know, um, if there are two competing companies and one of them is employing, is adding to its staff much more than the other, or one of them is uh, uh, contributing to the balance of trade much more because they're not importing, they're exporting, um, those kinds of things, then, then we'll preference those. So that all came into effect, you know, that th- that was all campaigned on last year, and um, you know, with the with the changing of the regulations, um, that's not possible. But like, even within the Institute of Race Relations, like you know, January sixteenth, the important date came and went. Like, I can't think of anyone in the I like it. I don't think you guys talked about it this, that date on the daily French show. I don't think it was like on uh, anyone wrote about it. Um, like in a way, what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to say is that somehow, um, uh, even if the DA is getting to the point where, and, and by the way, the DA campaign is like, as far as I understand it, 
you know, it's like no localization, don't do tariff increases, or if you need tariff increases, it's only because of all of the extra graft. Um, and, uh, you know, it, in the, in the fine print, there's like a, you know, uh, let's, 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 let's scrap EE from, from how we're doing this. Um, but it's not, it's, it's like, I guess what I'm trying to say is if the 20 teens way of going about complaining about things was to, was to complain about Zoom and not the ANC and then to fall into the trap of thinking, okay, if Ramaphosa takes over, things will be fine. The 2020s problem seems to be thinking, well, if you get rid, you know, it's like an ANC problem. Um, and, you know, uh, the, 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 so we've gone from personnel to party, um, but still not yet from party to policy in the analysis. It's still not yet like memeable um, to say, look, here's why things aren't working. It's because you have a set of rules uh, on how to spend money. And those rules are expressly designed not to maximize the amount of electricity that you make while minimizing the cost. Um, those rules are expressly trying to do something else. And so they're not maximizing the money and minimizing the cost. Uh, sorry, maximizing the electricity. Yes. <laughs> they are maximizing <laughs> the money. <laughs> so, so yeah, and, and my worry is that... Um, I, I just, uh, I do worry a little bit, like it feels a little bit like we're running out of time. Um, and particularly with ESCOM, it feels like if ESCOM doesn't, um, you know, how can the DA help ESCOM most right now? I would say, uh, by, um, telling those guys, look, uh, you need to, um, uh, immediately implement the Zondo Commission's uh, recommendations that all organs of state, starting with ESCOM, uh, maximize value for money. And this is expressly in terms of, you know, Section 217 of the Constitution. Um, uh, uh, say, you know, Zondo says, you know, Section 2 is about affirmative action. Section 1 is about maximizing value for money. One of them has to be Trump the other. Um, you need to choose which and you need to choose maximizing value for money. So implementing the state capture report means getting rid of BEE as everyone understands it. Um, and and the chairman of the ESCOM board has said, no, he doesn't want to do that. Uh, Nyati Mteta Ntati has said he wants to do that. Um, one of the, you know, probably the most respected businessmen on the ESCOM board. Uh, so you've got two dudes on the ESCOM board who have opposing views on this. Um, presumably the chairman is going to be in a stronger position to influence who the next CEO is going to be. Whoever the next CEO is going to be is going to be in in charge of deciding who the next CFO is going to be and CPO, Chief Procurement Officer. And those guys are really going to be the ones in charge of deciding which way things go. And I don't think that, um, you know, so the best thing to be right to do right now is before March, before uh, Dureta and Oberhauser and company leave ESCOM, is to implement a uh, uh, the, the Zondo report at ESCOM, is to change the procurement policy. Um. And then the newcomers are going to have to either change it back or they're going to have to uh, do something else, you know, uh, keep it and uh, and give South Africa the best chance of getting electricity now. And I don't see that happening. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't see the DA's campaign uh, giving enough support to that specifically. Maybe I'm being too negative. Maybe, um, 
maybe the DA is doing exactly what it needs to do, which is expose how um, foolishly the ANC is willing to try and scapegoat ESCOM itself, you know, redraw attention to the fact that Gwede Mantashe has openly, you know, said, this is not our fault, this is their fault. They're deliberately trying to do treason. Uh, Deret has been, you know, suffered an attempted assassination. This is all very real stuff, and it's all truly humiliating for the ANC. I think even its most sympathetic sort of media um, champions, you know, are going to have a really difficult time making this look good for the ANC. So, you know, it's creating a lot of negative news cycles for the ANC, and that's very important uh, in the build-up to 2024 for for, for um, producing a competitive election. But I just feel like um, maybe one way to put it is like this, you know, let's say, let's say I got what I wanted. Um, let's say ESCOM, uh, let's say, you know, we, the Institute really uh, talks up the, the significance of changing the procurement policy at ESCOM before March. Before before director leaves, let's say um, other civil societies talk that up. Let's say that they actually uh, that the ESCOM guys in charge are like, well, why not do that? You know, what have they got to lose? People are already trying to kill him. It's not like they can get any more angry at director. He's already decided to quit. Uh, it's not like he they can you know be like, well, we're going to fire you. You know, there is there is. <laughs> Everything is lined up for these guys to just flip and pull the trigger and cut BEE out of ESCOM. It can happen. There's literally legally nothing to stop them from doing it. That barrier has been removed. So let's say they do it. And let's say that the new uh, replacement of Dorator takes really long. And, um, uh, and uh, you know... The board asks him to just stick around until his replacement can be found. And so he keeps, you know, combating the saboteurs and he keeps and he kind of starts improving. You know, he saves 10% immediately on a whole bunch of coal contracts. And that money is used to, you know, pay for um, a, 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 a crack team for diesel and a crack team of international and local kind of engineering experts and managerial experts to like kind of come back in and add another uh, bit of impetus. And so we go down from stage six to stage two in a month, you know, or stage four or wherever you guys are at. And, uh, and then, and then things get slightly tricky in the winter, but you know, there's enough of a sense of like, Ooh, maybe this is working that let's just say, and enough political, uh, heat is created by the DA. Let's just say Ramaphosa kind of quietly leaves it be and lets ESCOM for the next 12 months um, be run as best it can be. Now, 12 months of really the best ESCOM that we can have is not going to solve load shedding. But it's going to reverse the trend noticeably. You know, you look at the number of hours that South Africa has been without electricity for the last five years, it's every year significantly worse than the previous. And 2023 can be, you know, significantly better. And so much so that people notice that like when people are on the radio, they're like, yeah, you know, dude, it's been two hours every day this week, but like that's so much better than when it was six hours. And it's actually... You know, we had like two weeks of no, you know, people 
people say something is going right and the economy feels it. And, you know, you kind of have uh, that together with like no more lockdowns together with a growing global economy in this scenario. I'm not saying this is definitely what's going to happen, but just imagine, you know, just suppose China does hit 8% this year. Um, Europe avoids uh, recession. The global economy grows. America's really, you know, American politicians are touchy about it, but American businesses are very eager to get back to the China America model. It's the, the wheels are rolling again. China's, I mean, Japan's, you know, <laughs> Japan uh, central bank is, has tenaciously refused to increase interest rates. You know, they're letting inflation uh, go there, with, but you know, they're letting the economy keep growing there. They're they're not trying to cool it down. You know, there there are a few interesting factors that contribute to just a slightly better than expected, uh, a, a, a significantly, you know, 50 basis points better than expected, you know, global growth in 2023. And domestically, you know, quite significantly better than expected because 12 months of ESCOM being run properly between February 2022 and February 2023, ESCOM is run properly. That does make a difference. And who benefits from that difference? That's the question. And I think a lot of people that are very critical are going to think the ANC benefits from that difference. And so they're not that interested in solving the problem. They're that interested in right now saying this is all the ANC's fault. And if things keep getting worse while the finger is pointed at Lutuli House, there is like a political incentive uh, to, in a sense, say things can't get bad enough. You know, let's go to stage eight here. That's true. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. That's true up to a point. Um, there is also the problem of if things get so incredibly ultra mega worse, there's a point at which you don't really want to necessarily even be the government anymore. Because what are you going to do with this mess? It's just, it's just, it's just nothing but death. Uh, if like the middle class doesn't exist anymore, for example. So I think that argument only goes. I mean, it goes a long way, but it doesn't go all the way. Um. I do also think, like, I think actually the main difference between what you're saying, what what you're saying they could sort of say, uh, and what they are saying is that uh, they're not making the linkage with the Zondo Commission report in the way that you do. I mean, they they have they do in every time, uh, and I think you're giving by saying that they're putting the abolish BE bit in small print. I think is giving it a little bit short shift. It's in okay. the list that they read out every single time. That's great. Dude, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. Um, you know, like uh, Stian Hazen's announcement of this March. Uh, it says, uh, unbundling ESCOM, privatizing most of it, opening the electricity market to private competition, bringing in skilled engineers and exempting ESCOM and other energy producers from cumbersome localization and BEE rules. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, there's definitely a... <laughs> that, that it is one of the perverse incentives, I think, of, of, of all opposition parties. Um, particularly them now, when they feel, when there's a sense that the that that this might be the the opportunity to just sort of uh, this is yeah, the albatross. The, you hang it around your yes, opponent's neck, and you it, have uh, to like albatross hanging season is now. <laughs> and it's going to it's going to only accelerate as we go on when everything is going to be on the ANC. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, and look. I, I I appreciate you pushing back on me again uh, on that front. I I I um 
I might, it, 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 it would certainly be fair to say that I haven't looked closely and that I did see them mention the BE thing. And I, and I, and I, I, I kind of, I felt like I wish <laughs> I, uh, it, I actually felt like that's really great. Um, but, such uh, a long way from where they were in 2019. It is. And, and dude, look, I mean, worst case scenario is that, um, they they don't get much attention. They don't get much, you know. Yeah. But if they if they if they get a big crowd and um and they get uh, diverted by the anti youth league, I think um you know let's hope no one gets hurt. But you know that's an important uh, that'll be an important moment. And if the anti youth league kind of backs down and they do manage to actually march to Lutuli House, I don't know when last um there really was a march to Lutuli House by non ANC by ANC opponents that actually made so, it to the house. Yeah, as far as I know, there hasn't been one to Latuli House. The only time a non-ANC party... Yeah, the, the, the only time an ANC, a non-ANC party got close was, I think, when the ANC was still in Shell House. And then there was a massive gun battle. <laughs> yeah, there was a massive gun <laughs> So... <laughs> they've been in Latuli House. My understanding, you know, Latuli House is, is like... Right next Wait, didn't to the ANC march to Oh, yeah, no, I suppose. Yes, the ANC itself managed to march to the I specifically put in that caveat because when they stopped paying the people who work for the ANC in Latuli House, the people in the ANC who work in Latuli House did manage to get to the front door and pick it. I, <laughs> I doubt they'll go right to the front door. I, I think they probably will stop at least at least in the plan. I don't know what the plan exactly is, but uh, I suspect it'll stop probably at least down the street a bit. Um, because the last thing they want is someone getting, you know, they're supposed to be the law and order party and the sort of like good governance party. The last thing they want is someone getting overexcited and like throwing something at the building or breaking a window or something like that. Oh, dude, that it's so tempting. You know, I, I, I was trying to say, so the Chili House is like right over the road from the IOL building, the independent media building. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah, independent just, all that. just throw the things that direction. <laughs> and they've got, you know, there's this beautiful thing because that building has like two aspects and across the street and there's like one of those, you know, on the fifth story, this like air bridge, uh, this like pipe between the one building and the other building. Uh, so you can like you know go from one office to another without having to go across the filthy street, um, and and on it is written wall to wall coverage, which I just think is a great ad. It's one of the great sort of South African, uh, <laughs> you know, IOL independent media wall to wall coverage. Anyway, um, the it is sort of uh, you know one what one wonders about whether anyway one of the interesting things is that at this stage you won't expect the IOL journalists to fail to cover the incident uh, and you won't expect them to cover the incident in a way overly sympathetic to the ANC. <laughs> it, it's going to be kind of because, because, because the, the IOL line really is, there, yeah. is, is the anti and Gordon line, right? They're part of that faction of the ANC as far as I understand. So, well, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I do think it's too easy to say every journalist at the IOL is. Um, okay, no, no, sure. But yeah, there, the, there is an editorial line. Absolutely. There, yeah, there is a, <clears throat> there is a, uh, a lean yeah. <laughs> in that direction. Um, so they might be tempted to cover at least the ANC Youth League favorably. Oh, I think Such so. Such as it exists. I think so. But I also think 
I, this is the point. It, it, it'll be, it'll be, um, um, an interesting test of, you know, well, what matters more like humiliating, um, Ramaphosa, Gordon, uh, and company or venerating the, the brave kind of firebrand Africanist socialist youth. Um, you know, what's going to be more important, like dissing the DA or recognizing that they're voicing I mean, the people's complaints and no one else. If you're, if you're a skilled enough writer, maybe you can do both. <laughs> oh, I think they're going to do all four. They're going to like diss the DA, but also credit the, the message. And uh, anyway, you know, so that'll be interesting. You, one does want the police to do a good job of keeping it all safe. Yeah, uh, that would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it should absolutely be... Uh, it's so weird that there that there is this de facto notion that like the ANC's turf runs from the Tully House north until the kind of pseudo boulevard corridor that runs east west across town, where the where there are you know a couple of squares um, uh, carved out, uh, you know little mini parks and squares, and it's like so the, so the march can sort of terminate in one of those mini parks in one of those squares. Um, but it can't it can't keep going south from there. Uh, it's it's like the bloods in the crypts, you know. It's it's just such a strange <laughs> thing to live to to live in a country where um, where the ruling political party. By the way, uh, it is funny. Just as an aside, you know, I'm I'm in Russia. I'll be coming back soon came for holiday to visit my darling. Like um, I was walking through town and walking past the Russian parliament. And they, <laughs> there was one dude outside with a, with the banner. Um, uh, saying, you know, true Russians for Putin. Uh, and uh, it was like, you know, you need a rally behind the leader. And he had this like, this like, like strange kind of flag. I was trying to look it up. It's like a um, anyway, patriotic war as they call it, World War Two kind of. Uh, but it's not a Soviet flag. I mean, I think he also yeah, had a Soviet flag. I, I think I know the one you're talking about. Is it that red one? It's, it no, kind of looks it, like a Soviet flag, but it's not. No, it's like yellow and black. Um, which oh, are the like, old Russian imperial flag. No, it's which are the old imperial colors, but it's not the old imperial flag. It's like. Uh, it's it's I think it's of a regiment, a like pseudo like an imperial regiment that had survived into the into the Red Army, um, which is strange because you know there really was like the old imperial army against the new Red Army in uh, the aftermath of in the Civil War, um, and and World War Two is, is is decades later. Anyway, it's like it's this weird flag. I someone is trying to explain it to me anyway it's like a it's like a 40s flag anyway so this guy was very pro Putin. um it's like okay well you know there's freedom of expression in that sense but then there was also another guy who was um waving a banner against the um the uh uh the ruling party uh the the anc of russia and um you know i saw the police kind of uh go uh, go up to that guy and ask him some questions and check his id and then leave him alone um, and kind of keep an eye on him, but like, you know, uh, not touch him or hold him. And, uh, and the same 
uh, went for the the, the pro Putin guy. Like the, the the police never stopped. You know, there were two police officers, kind of you know, ten meters away from him that that never took their eye off him. And I thought it was a sort of interesting little vignette. But anyway, so like I do think that um, it would be great to. I I, I understand why you say it's unlikely that the march will go to the front door of your Tully house. Um, but I think it'd be really great to sort of, to explode that, um, that taboo, that notion that in a very real sense in South Africa, you cannot and may not um, wave a flag opposing the ANC in front of the firewall building. Um, and uh, let's see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would. It would. It's not nice to have no-go zones, and we've had them in this country for decades now. Yeah, apartheid. <laughs> no-go zone. <laughs> definitely during apartheid. Definitely after '94, and uh, yeah, the the breaking of those I think would be very good yeah. for our democracy. Yeah. All right, um, and it is, and it is for the media. You know, can you like? Okay, and I think so. I think our transition is like. My, I don't know. I kind of, uh, over the holidays, I spent a, I spent a day looking for a text. Um, I couldn't find it, but like, I, I remember when I was a student reading this text, uh, like a psychological study, um, of a sociological study that had tried to figure out um, wh- what most successfully gets people to connect the dots between the problems in their lives and the rules that govern those domains within the, which the problems lie. So, you know, the movement from, from problem to policy. And the study, the way I remember it is that they managed to Look at it in like in in different domains. So, like if you've got a problem at work, you know you might think your problem is you don't like your colleagues, or you don't like your boss, or you might think the problem is like um, you don't uh, you don't like the competition. Um, or you might think the problem is you don't like yourself. You're kind of uh, underqualified or overqualified undercapacitated you know there are there are various places there are various persons at whose door you might lay the blame uh but you might also think that you know the problem here is that we've got this rule uh people the rule is that the company supplies snacks coffee and biscuits and cans of coke and fanta and bottled water they put it in the fridge once every two weeks and and there's and there's no and then there's an honor code to whether you you go to the fridge immediately you've heard that there's some stuff there and you grab five cokes and you put them in your duffel bag or you don't do that and like you grab one if you need it and you come back and you remember when we had an office this was a real problem right <laughs> yes <laughs> right and so you know, different people would have different ways of thinking about this. Someone might be like, well, that one person does it. And what I don't like is that that one person does it. Uh, 
And you, the solution to the problem is like to get rid of that person or to complain about that person or something like that. Someone else might say, you know, the solution to the problem is we should put a, um, uh, a paper on the, on the fridge door with everyone's name there and you, and you check a box if you've removed something. So that and you and you and you're only allowed three ticks in a week or five ticks in a week, you know, so that there's some kind of that's a different rule to, to make a rule, of, yeah, a new rule. Yeah. And I don't think anyone recommended that, by the way. <laughs> and I think that would be a terrible idea. <laughs> um, some things are just too petty, you got it, you know. Um, but like, and it wasn't a, a big deal, but it's a but it's a sweet example of like, um of this kind of thing the sociological study was trying to analyze. Like, when do people go for the change the rules kind of option? And um, and just one other, you know, there's, there's a superset of that or subset, depending on anything about it, where it's like change the system. Where changing the system means changing kind of all of the rules. So, like, and that often happens, right? People are, like, kind of frustrated at work and then they become socialists. Um, it's like, you know, the, the real problem here is capitalism itself. You know, is, is the fact that I'm working for money in some sense. <laughs> or as, as internet commies say, um, what is it? Uh, I can't believe I have to work to not starve. Yes. You kind of get, and you're like, okay, so how am I going to solve my problem? Uh, I, I, I'm going to, and I, I buy, you know, I mean, I was chatting with this Russian, very intelligent, very sweet guy. I was like, you know, we had like a four hour political conversation there. It wasn't the first time we've done this. We, last time we did it over three days. And eventually I was like, um, you know, you, you, someone says something and you, you kind of challenge it, you expose the internal logical flaw. And then they say something else and you challenge, you expose the internal logical flaw. And then they say something, you're like, well, no, I agree with that, but here's why it doesn't get you to where you want to go. And then eventually he's like, you know, okay, quite, I mean, perfectly open. He's like, you know, dude, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, socialist like I, I i want the system to fundamentally change back to socialism because i don't like my job <laughs> well <laughs> you know and like how often is that the case um i've got another fr south african friend who was like a trade unionist and like a proper socialist like lefty uh anti-apartheid struggleista and uh no, he's like a dope smoke, you know, 65-year-old, like, hippie. Very sweet guy. Um, and and in between, he was, like, a very important media player in South Africa. And he said the thing that changed is he real is when he got divorced. He realized that, like, his wife was like, dude, you, you never solve your problems at home. And there are problems at home. And what you do is you go solve problems outside in the world in order to kind of distract yourself from the problems at home or to project you know performances of solving the problems at home out in the world so like you know you're worried about selfishness at home so you go and address selfishness out in the world and he was like dude i realized my wife was totally my ex-wife was totally right like i was a socialist because i was a total asshole and i didn't want to solve the problems at home <laughs> so i was like you know solving everyone else's problems um I think there's a there's a meme about this, which is like you you become uh, left wing if your father was rich. If you become what is it kind of uh, you know that four quadrant political compass? It's like yes. libertarian left. You become libertarian left if your father was rich but didn't give you any money. You become libertarian right if your father was rich but did give you money. 
uh, no was nasty to you. That's that's the that's the one axis. And then if you're poor and your father was nasty to you, then you become no good to you. Then you become uh, left. And then anyway, it's it's based on the exact same principle. Right. I, I suppose the, what the thought is like: if your father's nasty to you, then you want to it was, change it the was, rules. It was it was yeah, it was it was, and it was claiming so that the whole of socially yeah, progressive of politics is like a. Uh, a, a kind of yes is, is is sort of a conflict between you and your father <laughs> which puts us both in a very interesting box anyway who knows yeah dude i mean but so i i mean i think that there's something like i'm very much not do you know who's that guy who wrote that book remember i had rian a big fan of this book um uh, famous famous book like amongst our parents generation uh, everyone would know this book where this guy kind of um, did little biographies. Like each chapter is kind of like a biography of some famous lefty historical figure, like starting with Karl Marx and just exposing how inconsistent their personal lives were with, with uh, their uh, theories, you know? So like, you know, the, the book that like is like Marx was like sleeping with the mate and denied the, the, the bastards was his child kind of a thing and uh, smoked cigars and, Anyway, I, to me, that is just such a book. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, that's so South African. That's the South African way of doing political analysis. It's like, okay, let's think about Zuma. Uh, let's think about Zuma's upbringing, being a goatherd. Let's think about Ramaphosa's upbringing. Let's think about these biographies. Uh, you know, as if the problem with the left is that uh, they preach. Uh, values that are that exceed their actual practice it's like dude if you're not if you're not trying to hold yourself up to a standard that's 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 higher than what you always achieve you know if you always manage to satisfy your own standards <laughs> yeah i've I, standards I must say must be I'm, I'm pretty low i'm called to sort of proving hypocrisy as a as any kind of a win really in a, in a sort of argument because it's kind of like well it doesn't really solve anything you know just because the left is not standing up to as you say what the their best goals themselves doesn't mean that much i don't think yeah who is is the is the right good goodness gracious you know the only way to do no. that is is the, i mean there is a version my favorite my favorite sort of counter example is um there was this group of libertarian economists <laughs> this actually happened like 10 11 years ago who wrote this paper saying um you know uh, if economists are caught uh, twisting the data in order to um, argue for smaller government, um, that's not actually unethical because their base, our basic premise is you should do whatever the market dictates. And so we're getting paid money to say that uh, lower taxes are better. Uh, and so that's what we're saying. And if, as long as there's people who's willing to buy this, like what legitimizes our work is that there are people who are willing to pay us to say this stuff. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, so it's like, okay, well, you guys aren't hypocrites. It is possible to set up, you know, if you, and this is, this, that is literally the definition of a sophist. It wasn't a pejorative term. A sophist was just someone who you hire to say whatever you want them to say um, uh, in order to uh, satisfy whatever needs you please. And uh, it's not to say that there's no, you know, reason for them not to lie or, or BS. 
they might totally lose credibility. But if they can lie and get away with it, there's literally nothing wrong with that. There's that's that's the same as a calling that wrong is like saying it's wrong for a butcher to or, or wrong for a pig slaughterhouse to slaughter pigs. It's like, well, that's what that's what they're there for, actually. That's their function. Um, and I think that's so, you know, uh, yeah, there's a there's a really good example of why uh, if, if you can say, well, look, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm just a liar. <laughs> I'm just a hired hack. Mm. Like, OK. <laughs> anyway, so um, the the. The, the the challenge is, I think, to to there, there's this ongoing challenge to figure out like when there's a problem, what kind of solution, what kind of problem solving analysis should you apply? What kind of solution should be in mind? Um, if you're always going for policy, if you're always going to change the rules, I think you're going to get in trouble. I think you're going to want to start sort of putting lists on fridges all the time. Uh, like that would like really, I would not want to work in an office where you kind of have to write your name down. Like I took a Coca Cola, I had it's a cup like of the, coffee. I'm not going to have to. It's like the, the the super ultra the like what people accuse sort of some the place like Amazon of doing of like you know you have to log your bathroom breaks. You have allocated a lot of time to go to the toilet. And they, I, I don't know if that's the, actually true, but people accuse them of, of doing that. Yeah, I puffed the cigarette like eight times. I sat on the couch, you know, and the couch has been calculated. Like if you sit every 10,000 times someone sits on the couch, it needs like a deep service and like every 100,000 times it needs to be replaced. So everyone has to like log how many times they've sat on the couch because that's like, you know, squashing the cushion down and reducing its wear and tear. <laughs> that would be terrible. That would be terrible. So you can't always go for changing the rules. Sometimes it's sometimes it's like these are good rules. You've just got a bad leader or a bad servant or a bad um, customer or a bad competitor. Uh, 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 changing the rules always ends up being like being a revolutionary who just wants to change the whole system. And sometimes you need to change the whole system. You know, you're, it's in apartheid. Look, if you if you're just trying to make money in apartheid, that's fine. Uh, in a way, or let me rather say, I think that there are some people who, of whom you could kind of say their predominant professional focus was just trying to make money and that they ended up contributing more than they hurt. Um, you know, solid businessmen kind of selling uh, school stationery or something. But, 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 but like revolutionaries were clearly onto the right thing. And some revolutionaries were, were terrible, and some were really great. Some were, some were real heroes. Uh, so sometimes you need to change the whole system. Sometimes you need to just change policy. Uh, sometimes you need to change personnel. Uh, and, and how do you distinguish between these? But in particular, I mean, it's, it's like a very well-established fact that um, populations around the world tend not to connect the dots between their problems and policies. They tend to rather blame personalities or parties, or tribes. And so the study was trying to figure out, and I couldn't find this paper to figure like to see what they thought was the magical recipe for, um, for getting people to connect the dots. Um, but in a way, I think journalism, uh, at least one of its functions, if journalism is functioning properly, is to, is to continually try to answer that question in practice. So that's kind of one working definition of journalism. But I kind of just, um, 
and 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 so my worry, you know, and hope would be that as the DA goes to march against load shedding at Lutuli House and and the whole thing gets covered, that someone out there talks about the rules of the game uh, and how and how that's in, in impacted things. But but I but I wanted to what I t- <laughs> what I told Nick before the show, I wanted to as I stumbled across. Um, an interesting passage in a book that I've mentioned more than once on the show um, that gave a definition of journalism. I thought I might just canvas like one or two famous definitions of journalism. Uh, so this is this is uh, Catherine Graham's personal history. It's her memoir. She won the Pulitzer Prize for it. It's, it's really well written. And she was the publisher of the Washington Post when they did the, when when they were involved in the Pentagon Papers, which showed that the U.S. military um, and political class had had very deliberately lied to the American people. By the way, something that I feel like, um, you know, the Pentagon Papers issue, we do a lot of Vietnam sort of recalling. Uh, 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 sometimes I feel a little bit like we're missing a trick. Yeah. Um, in failing to notice that that part of the reason the US, things went the way they did in 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 Vietnam was was that the the Pentagon and the White House lied to Americans, uh, you know, the, the very own goal thing. It wasn't just like the the brilliant machinations of the commies, um, but. Her husband was the head of so the Pentagon Papers. Not that well remembered, but I think everyone remembers Watergate, uh, get rid of Nixon. That was all under her. Um, and it, oddly enough, a couple of weeks after that, she dealt with. She said an even bigger crisis in a way for the Washington Post than being hounded by the FBI was when they had a strike, and they had to, you know, they, the business, the 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 that hot, you know, it was a printing press strike, and um, it really nearly drove them out of business. Um, and anyway, so her husband, Phil Graham, had helped get JFK elected by convincing uh, uh, LBJ to run as his deputy and not oppose him firmly in the primary and by getting um, the other major Democratic candidate to to stay away from the race completely so that you know JFK would have a clear primary run through, managed to get to face the Republicans unopposed, you know, managed to get to face the Republicans without having first been scarred by, by, by heavy challenges in the primaries. And so when J- JFK becomes president, Phil Graham, you know, feels like he's the kingmaker and he is um, the chief editor of the Washington Post, the most respected, second most respected newspaper in the free world. And he's hanging out with the with the Rand Club. You know, the, do you remember the Rand Club? Oh yeah. So I mean, they they were like, um, would you say classical liberal? Yeah, maybe libertarian. I don't know enough about it to be honest. So you realize I'm not talking about the Rand Club in in Joburg. I'm talking about yeah, the, no. the 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 uh, 1940s 50s sort of America's first. As far as I can understand, America's first, you know, sort of uh, big policy influencing think tank. Yeah, no, uh, I'm not familiar enough with them. They were they were into I I you know I think a lot of similarities between them in the early days and and like the IRR, you know, wanting to at least relative to where things were then limit the size of government, 
um, because the the worry was that um, uh, what was his name, the president during World War Two? Uh, FDR. And what was his big uh, grow government plan? The New Deal. The New Deal, because they were kind of reacting against the New Deal, and they thought, okay. Um, this had some good sides to it, and let's keep those. But it's got some bad sides, and we need to push against that. And we need to do. Yeah, that. it did fundamentally alter the structure of uh, how the U.S. federal government was allowed to operate. So Phil Graham is like kind of hanging out with these dudes. I think who would really credibly consider themselves mostly to be centrists, nonpartisan, not for the Democrats, not for the Republicans, and they, uh, you know. Well, those those um, the parties were less ideologically coherent in those days, anyway. Exactly, and so and the Rand Club itself, you know. By the way, you know, Full Graham by by this stage, and he's helping JFK get elected. He's 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 more deeply embedded than in the Democratic Party than anywhere else. But partly because the Democratic Party is now, you know, under JFK, for example, but, but generally after World War II, um, takes a couple of knocks and is willing to let go of of total New Deal ism as a as a panacea. Anyway. Full Graham feels like he's hanging out with smart think tank types. He's hanging out with the president. He helped the president become the president. He's the head of the coolest newspaper. He's, he goes kind of mad and he falls in love with this, like, if I remember correctly, Australian, a hot, you know, long-legged, uh, blonde uh, journalist and uh, decides to divorce his wife. Uh, and... And the tricky thing for him, it, one of the tricky things is the only way he got that job is because he married the daughter of the man who founded the Washington Post. So it's a little bit like you marry into the company, you take over the company, then you feel like you've taken over all of America. And then you get rid of your wife, who's the mother of three children and is a bit older now, not that sexy anymore, and replace her with like this uh, Australian bimbo or reporter or you know I, I don't think it's fair really to call her a bimbo but she you know she was young and um the basis of the attraction was certainly partly that he was kind of just bored with his wife and felt like he was too good for her because he was now the coolest guy in the world so phil graham shortly after this kills himself um he was manic depressive he was diagnosed he was sort of oscillating between uh, spurts of mania and spurts of, of profound depression, and and she writes about this very candidly, going through the divorce and then going through the um, uh, attempts to return to normalcy, and then going through a suicide. Right. And as a result, she ends up, you know, taking over the newspaper, and 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 she takes over the newspaper before it's done its most important work. It does its most important work under her. That you know, this we're we're in. Obviously, JFK, we were in the world before the Pentagon Papers and before uh, Watergate. And it's not clear that he would have done as well because he didn't have, he wasn't as solid as her. But he was a great raconteur. He was, a, anyway, she's fancy, you know, like one little anecdote just in the, in the build up to this passage is that what, what, what she quotes just before is like Isaiah Berlin. You know, she's like her best, Truman Capote is like her best friend. Uh, JFK's K's wife, what was her name again? Jackie Onassis. Jackie. Like, like she, Jackie she, she is the one who goes and tells Jackie's family, you know, goes and sits with Jackie's family once Jackie's died 
no, sorry, once she's the one who goes and sits with Jackie and tells her, dude, you need to get the blood off your gloves. Like, um, after after J, JFK's been assassinated. She's like best friends with Jackie Onassis, best friends with Truman Capote, best friends with Cyberlin. I Cyberlin times surgery and recovery at the period when Phil Graham, the divorcing husband, is going to be in London so that he won't have to see Phil Graham out of loyalty <laughs> to Catherine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And he like writes her this long letter, like, dude, I timed it. I was like in recovery for four weeks. I didn't see anyone at all. But then Phil went to London, then Phil went to Paris and Milan, and then he came back to London again and he caught me. So I did have to meet him. And, you know, I didn't laugh at any of his jokes. I, uh, you know, I'm loyal to you. I told him that. And in fact, she kind of publishes part of this letter and it feels kind of creepy because you realize part of the issue is that these writers, it's hard, it's hard not to hold on to the feeling that like these writers want to be very nice to her because she's unimpeachable. She never does anything wrong. So in that sense, she's like easy to like, and she's extremely power in the powerful in the writing world. Uh, so there's a little bit of this like business suck up thing. Anyway, I think much more than that. Well, in addition to that, not 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 against it. There's there's a real sincere admiration for her and her for these fabulous people because they're very talented and, and and trying very hard to to do the right thing in in various different ways that involve the word um so in so she sort of uh uh cites the isaiah berlin letter and she, you know she starts this paragraph saying it seemed i seem to be living on another planet the most painful moments the ones that disturbed me the most profoundly were those in which people reported to me that they had seen Phil and that he appeared to be rational and calm, indeed quite well. Even Fritz Beeb at one point told me he seemed fine. Uh, I'd begun seeing Dr. Cameron at this time, and he assured me that people in these states could appear normal for, for defined periods of time when they wanted to, but that fundamentally Phil was not rational, that he was ill. Even so, despite his assurances, the apparently normal encounters Phil was having with others shook me about him, about us. Was this the real Phil? Was this what he really wanted? If so, what did he say? What did this say about our relationship, about our 22 years together? What he seemed to be saying was that whatever was the matter with him was my fault. And here was the girl of his dreams. And all he needed was to be rid of me and to be with her and with the post. And she sort of goes, you know, some, this friend's being nice to me and that friend's being nice to me. And uh, in advance of the, and then the Isaiah Berlin thing, the, the trip and, uh, that he was taken to London. And then the, in advance of the trip back to London, Phil had planned for a meeting of Newsweek's overseas correspondents. They arrived from all over the world to meet with the editors in London. And he made a speech to this group, demonstrating yet again his ability to function at a high level, even in the face of his illness. He began his remarks by describing the company saying, I have been responsible for its affairs, this is the Washington Post, for 17 years, and for the last 15 years, since it became a corporation in 1948. I've been the controlling owner of its voting shares. There was no mention of my father, or how this came to be, or the existence of me as a minority owner, of course. He ended his remarks with some philosophical thoughts, including a phrase about journalism's being the first rough draft of history, which is quoted to this day. I am insatiably curious about the state of the world. I am constantly intrigued by information of topicality. I revel in the recitation of the daily and weekly grist of journalism. 
maybe I should do this in American accent because Phil was very American. Much of it, of course, is pure chaff. Much of our discussions of how to do it better, journalism, consist of tedium and detail. But no one yet has been able to produce wheat without chaff. And not even such garrulous romantics as Fidel Castro or such transcendent spirits as Abraham Lincoln can produce a history which does not in large part rest on a foundation of tedium and detail, and even sheer drudgery. So let us today drudge on about our inescapably impossible task of providing every week a first rough draft of a history that will never be completed about a world we can never really understand. So I think, in a, certainly to my ear, the notion that journalism is the first rough draft of history, um, given you know shortly before he killed himself by uh, a maniac going through very real bipolar uh, divorce, um, god complex, uh, sort of writing awfully uh, uh, cloying letters to the president. You know, um, it, it's uh, it's the most famous phrase about what journalism is. We're, the first time I ever heard someone describe journalism in a catchy phrase, it was as the first rough draft of history. And I think that there's something to that. Um, but I think that there's something about the backstory to this quote that exposes the, the sense in which one can get it wrong, right? Phil Graham was so grandiose. How do you say that word? Grandiose? Grandiose. grandiose. I think it's grandiose. <laughs> grandiose. You know, he was so self-important. He was, you know, a newspaper, the first rough draft of history. There's kind of, there's, there's this, it's, it kind of disappears the gap between the newspaper, which ends up in the trash can, and the library book about history, which ends up in the library that sticks around for a couple of thousand years. Um it kind of pretends it, it, it imparts a sort of a sort of grand authority and a distance from the subject. Even you know, it's 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 it, the the qualifiers rough draft. I think is doing quite a lot of work in the sentence. There. Yeah, rough is really, and I mean, and I, think, <laughs> I think part of it's like it's made in a speech where he is basically trying to uh, impress on all of these journalists that it would be a, 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 a sacrilege to remove him from the Washington Post because he's getting divorced from the heiress uh, to the Post. You know, he's kind of on a political campaign here and he's trying to elevate journalism into some space where it's like, you know, this is, I might have married into this spot, but like this is a, this is a sacred spot that I've got. Um, and, in, and, and we don't usually think of history uh, as essentially being an attempt to change the outcome of events which is politics, uh, change the course of events. And yet, you know, of course, like to a modern ear, we all kind of know if you can control the past, you can control the present. And he who can control the present controls the future. So history is very much a political exercise. R writing and rewriting history is a way of influencing politics. And with that notion of history in mind, that kind of debased, uh, post uh, post nobility post um, sacred notion of history as just another way in which people argue with each other in order to try and get what they want. 
or something like it. Um, it it works really well. But you kind of, in in other words, I think you kind of have to. It's not just it's it's rough draft is doing a lot of work, but so is history. Um, uh, if you think of history as something noble and clean and stuck in the library shelf, okay. But if you think of history as a, as an ongoing battle, uh, an ongoing front. In the in the battle of ideas, then it's another story. So there's another version that I was reminded of. I thought that I might have recommended this. Did you see this uh, debate with um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell and who's the guy who wrote the Madness of Crowds? Uh, uh, Douglas Murray. Douglas Murray um, and Matt Taibbi and. Ugh, this American, this New York Times writer whose name I always forget. Sort of feminists, um, slightly post. Yeah, I don't think you've recommended it. So it was a monk debate. So I better recommend it. It was like it, it happened during the holidays in December, and so you know monk debates are often the best. Um, um, I'm trying to think what were the other famous ones there I'm blanking anyway it was it was the, it was about um I think the proposition was something like has woke culture gone too far was that a different debate I think it was has woke sure. culture gone too far mm. but That's a, <laughs> it's a lot of lot of broadness in that which you can stick your teeth into I suppose yeah, I mean, so obviously, no, that was the Oxford debate. What was the, which I can't, where James, dude, James Lindsay, I think we can now say it out loud. Um, uh, tall, anyway, we heard directly from this guy, James Lindsay, who's this like American mathematician, um, anti-woke academic, that he was going to try this gambit and he did it. We went to this Oxford debate last week and the, on has woke culture gone too far? And he argued on the pro side, he argued that woke culture has not gone too far. So he's really, really anti-woke. And he's sitting between like three social justice warriors who like, oh my God, woke culture hasn't, hasn't, hasn't gone far enough. We still uh, aren't letting uh, trans people, you know, have gender reassignment uh, surgery at 16 or, you know, there's this big debate in the UK about uh, what it legally takes to get your uh, new gender to be legally recognized. And he's arguing on the same side as these people who like hate him because his basic argument is woke like wokeness can't go far enough because it's a maximalist ideology. Uh, uh, So it's just, as soon as you understand the term woke, you understand that the proposition woke culture has gone too far can't possibly make sense. Um, and he does this sort of performative, like, and then he goes like, how can you, you know, he, he kind of tries to outwork the other wokies by contradicting himself and being really bitchy and saying, you know, just the fact that I'm wearing a suit uh, and that we're all wearing suits and bow ties shows how you know imperial colonialist garb survives in Oxford as an oppressive totem, and it's kind of funny. I you know I kind of didn't think it'd be funny. Yeah. That 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 I think I think you know some of that stuff has been overdone and been done lazily, but 
I think, yeah, there is still definitely opportunities for humor in that. Yeah. And I, I think part of what's funny about it is how clearly nervous he is um, that it might not work. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing worse than trying to, to sort of do a work parody and then just coming off as lazy and uncreative, like and yeah. unfunny. Yeah. And he, like, the first, and he's, like, very, and he's not a, you know, James Lindsay, I think he's a really hardworking guy. There's some things I think he gets wrong. But, you know, he's clearly very smart and and very, very serious and very nervous that he's getting it wrong. <laughs> but, and that, and that, and, and that saves it from going wrong, I think. You know, there just is this true emotional display. So the monk debate that I'm thinking about, it, it was, um, at, be it resolved, don't trust the mainstream media. Right. And it's like, I mean, how many times have we had this debate in the office, right? Um, well, many things to be said about the term mainstream media to begin with. Yeah. And I, in a way... In this debate, so 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 Matt Taibbi is in the middle of like like the just just on the phrase mainstream media. As far as I understand, the kind of way it comes to prominence is because it emerges from in like the nineties um, when Fox News is kind of starting to kick off and when conservative talk radio is starting to carve its place in America as being this very big force. And so it really was like this new media versus the mainstream established things. But in 2023, I mean, in the U.S., it's a little bit more complicated, right? Because you say, well, you know, there's Fox is the only right-leaning one, and then all the other ones are left-leaning. But then, you know, Fox has like half of the viewership. Yeah, I mean, Fox is you know, as big like as all fifty percent of the viewership. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so is it is it not the mainstream media? I don't know. <laughs> it's bigger than the red, dude. So so that is the thing that I found most disappointing about the debate, and it's but it's interesting. Malcolm Gladwell, in a way, Malcolm Gladwell does this thing a little bit like James Lindsay. Like, he takes a huge gamble, I think. Because the debate goes on for an hour and a half, and they have lots of back and forth. I, I am going to make it my recommend. It's, like, really worth watching. Um, and I would say Malcolm Gladwell comes out really, really badly. He looks really, really bad. And part of what's interesting about this debate, the monk debates in general, is they get people to vote beforehand on whether you agree or disagree. And they get them to vote again afterwards. And before the debate starts, I think it's like 60% say trust the mainstream media and 40% say don't trust it. And by the end of the debate, it's like 65% say don't trust the mainstream media and 35% say trust it. There's like a 45-point swing. It's the biggest swing in the history of the monk debate. They've been having these debates for 10 years. Yeah, I'm familiar that they usually have like just like a few percentage points, right, who change between the two because most people going in have really set opinions to begin with. If it's like 48 to 52 at the beginning and at the end it's 48 to 52 the other way, that's like pretty big. This is like 40-60 the one way and it ends 40-60 the other way. It's, it's, it's crazy, dude. It's crazy. And I think partly... I mean, I read like uh, reviews in a bunch of, you know, right wing, uh, center right. I don't know. The Spectator, the National Review, the um, 
I think uh, was it Russ Duhat, the sort of conservative in the New York Times, uh, um, Darfit, like so, yeah. just described Douglas Murray's performance as the best debate performance of 2022. Like uh, Murray's obviously. Who's on the New York Times editorial? Because he's uh, not editorial, but on the opinion pages. Because he's one of their regulars. He's like one of their uh, token right wingers. But I think they've just added David French as well. No ways. Great. Yeah. I, the New York Times is not too old to kind of do its job. I think of genuinely offering. Uh, yeah, the New York Times has, uh, you know, um, a lot of people have defended right. at least, you know, it, it has slices of of media that uh, it has slices of news stories, particular topics that it's bad at covering, but yeah. then it has other topics which it's excellent at covering. Yeah, yeah, that's very much my experience. So, so, but but I want to tell you about Malcolm Gladwin's game, dude, because I think you find it interesting. So. Gladwell comes out and says, again, right at the beginning, he says, you know, he, he speaks forth. The New York Times uh, speaker kind of gives you a pretty standard banana, like, look, we got some things wrong on COVID, but we got some things right. Uh, we got the most important things right. You know, it's dangerous. Be careful. Uh, you need lots of government and intervention. We got some things wrong, but, you know, like everyone's getting things wrong some of the time. And if your expectation is that journalism is going to be right all of the time in its predictions, then uh, that's crazy. You've just got the wrong expectation. Malcolm Gladwell comes for Matt Taibbi starts. Sorry, I've, I've kept trying to start this point, but not completing it. Matt Taibbi's been doing the Twitter files release. You know, Ed, Elon Musk gave him kind of sole yeah, discretion. Yeah. He to was like the first one, I think, to get them. Yeah. Him and Barry Weiss. And then it's, I'm not sure who the race got it after that, but those are the first two to get them. So um, he's saying, you know, like there's been all the shadow banning and it's finally been proved. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think Taibi is one of those guys. He was like very anti the Iraq war. Um, maybe after the fact he was so young, like I'm not saying as a, as a pro, but like he grew up a little bit like me. He's older than me. You know, he sort of matriculated into a world that was feeling very disillusioned with American media because they all sold the line that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and that this justified the invasion. And that was Fox News and it was CNN, right? In fact, there was more CNN than Fox, uh, but it was definitely Fox as well. Um, and he was, I first read him in 2008, if you were studying uh, to be an investment banker at Princeton University, you had to know Matt Taibbi because he wrote the Rolling Stone article saying that Goldman Sachs was responsible for every major financial crisis for the last century, including the 2007-2008 one. And, you know, that influenced my life in the sense that I was like, well, I don't like how he's writing this article. I think he's exaggerating. Um, but I do think that Goldman Sachs uh, has an unanswered blame uh, for ruining people's lives. And that's why I did Occupy Goldman Sachs and decided not to become an investment banker. And I, and I think, and it's, tr it remains true to this day. You know, you want to know who should have gone to jail that didn't go to jail. Well, a couple of dudes at Goldman Sachs, um, uh, they, they, they uh, paid a fine without accepting responsibility. You know, they, they did this thing. We, we deny that we're guilty at all, but we'll pay $2 billion and let's let it go. Like, it just rationally doesn't make sense as a kind of deal for the government to offer. It denies any prestige punishment because they haven't accepted blame, even nominally. The fine is like what they make in 20 minutes 
it's you know it looks like a big number but it's a tiny number and the amount of genuine legitimate defrauding that they did and and hard evidence of it is 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 copious and i think you know that kind of went mainstream with the big short movie where you kind of see how goldman sachs finds itself on the wrong side of the position um and kind of uh is part of a game to then start telling lies to keep selling people the lie that the american housing market is rock solid while they're betting the other way and there's emails showing them saying you know this is bullshit but sell it to the clients uh so that we can when the crisis does come we will have um bet against the housing market sufficiently to make the most profit that they ever made in a year in the year <laughs> that the crisis came and only a few months before they you know they 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 were they were on the other side they sold all those bad debts when they knew they were bad unlike other people who just who didn't know you know so there's like some guys who were foolish but some guys were knaves and they were knaves anyway and i think tahibi really did a you know until the big show i'm i'm just trying to say with on this note it's like what is journalism well is a movie like the big short journalism right i think a lot of people because margot robbie was in a swimming pool with bubbles uh, trying to explain collateralized debt obligations actually do have a sense of what they are and do have a sense of who to blame. That was more accurate than they had before. Uh, but it's hard, like at that stage, it's literally made by Hollywood. There's no fact-checking um, mechanism that you can really and, find in the vicinity. And look, as a, as a, as a history enthusiast, um, it is replete. <laughs> the world is replete with myths created in Hollywood movies that have very little bearing on reality. Nothing. Dude, uh, Pearl Harbor. Oh, my word. What a strange movie, you know, to try uh, and <laughs> All the Japanese admirals are, like, doing the opposite. Like, you know, the, the guy who was against the invasion is for it, and the guy who was for it is against it. I don't know. It's like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a but, so, so I don't want to say, but, but, but in a certain sense, Matt Taibbi's role then, to me, was like as a, you know, he described Goldman Sachs as this like octopus with its tentacles in every part of the global economy. You know, he used this very evocative language and he kind of used this overblown notion that Goldman Sachs was responsible for every financial crisis for the last hundred years and could place two factoids about what caused the crisis in 1929, what connected that to Goldman Sachs and is not doing a proper historic, historical analysis, but is giving the readers the sense that Goldman Sachs might have been to blame for the global, for the Great Depression. And that kind of helps the memes stick that they did something wrong this time. And so it's like, you know, you know, the website designer for the journalism website, the printing press hot metal manager, the guy who's putting the ink into the well, you know, those guys are all contributing to the journalism in the sense of, or aren't they? Anyway, tricky question. Matt Taibbi is at the debate. He's doing the Twitter files thing. And, uh, and Gladwell speaks at the end, and Gladwell says, look, Taibbi has come up and told you, you know, in the Walter Cronkite era, the Phil Graham era, uh, the era of the 1950s and 60s, um, journalism was fabulous, and it wasn't bipartisan, and people just told you the truth. Dude, that's the time when there were no black people, uh, no women, uh, neither of the people on this side of the aisle would have even been considered journalists. Because to be a journalist, you had to be a straight white male to start out. Um, and he's hankering after this kind of uh, patriarchal, racist uh, period. And, 
And Douglas Murray and Matt Taibbi just laugh. I mean, dude, calling Matt Taibbi racist, like Matt Taibbi was writing for Rolling Stone because he was a lefty uh, uh, social justice warrior who hated banks, you know. Guys, yeah, he's, he's a goddamn commie. <laughs> In the loose use of that term. <laughs> he's, he's really, it's, it's really, it's, it's a really, um, it seemed like a foolish play. And Malcolm Gladwell is a wise guy. And then he doubles down and then he triples down. He only gets three turns to speak, kind of three or four turns. Every single time he takes this jab at these guys um, saying today's mainstream media shouldn't be trusted. Uh, but 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 there is some version of the mainstream in the 60s that should have been trusted. And that the difference is that that was run by straight white men. And that's why they like it. And it really, I think, is an important part of why Gladwell loses the argument. Why why 40% of the people in the, you know, why there's this 40% swing in the in the in the answers before and after. They, you know, Matt, Matt doesn't address it. Douglas Murray addresses it for Matt, which is very nice because defending yourself against that kind of claim is a difficult thing to do well. If you kind of do it casually, it seems like you don't take the allegation of seri- racism that seriously. If you do it very, very earnestly, like I saw Niall Ferguson once do, where he's puffs out his chest and he's got a black wife and he wasn't brought up that way and you're insulting my parents when you call me racist because they brought me up to like sort of care about people for who they are not for how they look you know it's like very very you know like tears welling up in his eyes like you can imagine him throwing his glove on the ground and challenging you to a duel for daring to call him racist and like and i sometimes get that feeling there's a good reason to bring back dueling false racism (laughs) accusations But like, if you do that, it kind of sucks a lot of time out of the debate and a lot of people, and it does make it very emotional. And it's, it's also easy to bully you then. Yeah. Which, which is the main problem. And, and you get the sort of really annoying kind of woke, lean woke people going, look at him, you know, he's performing on the stage for everyone. And it's just a bit gross. And what a, what a clown. In fact, I think one of Jordan Peterson's most famous early moments in his career was in a monk debate. Um, where this black American pastor, you know, very black with a capital B, he's proud to be black, uh, dude, can't remember his name, called Jordan Peterson a mean, mad white man. Uh, if you remember that mean, and and um, you know, they're having a debate. Jordan Peterson was with Stephen Fry, they were arguing against political correctness. And from very different positions. And this guy was like, you know, Jordan Peterson, you, you're like worrying about Marxism recasting the class divide as the kind of race divide and reifying these uh, groups in challenge in contraposition to each other in a way that nullifies the capacity for science, truth, reasonable discourse and turning everything into a power game. You think it's just all free French deconstructivism, Marxist uh, critical race theory it's back in 2015 or something. You're just so angry, dude. You're just a mean, mad white man. You're just worried about your privilege being taken away. And Jordan Peterson, you know, pushes back against him. He's like, dude, the fact that you are are accusing me of being a racist just because I'm white shows that you're a racist. Like you are a racist. And this is the problem with our society is that you as a racist pastor professor can stand up in front of an audience and use my race to demean me. And some of the people think this is cool. And the crowd kind of gets behind Peterson and it becomes a moment. But dude, I watched the debate after that. Nothing interesting happens. It really just, it makes it so emotional. So it's a hard thing. But but having your your friend say, dude, 
treating this guy like he's racist is crazy. That's the only time they have to deal with it. And then after that, Malcolm Gladwell keeps saying it, but they never respond. And it's devastating. It's in the numbers. Um, I think that this is part of why Gladwell loses. But here's what's interesting. I think Gladwell was doing it in part to try and elicit a response for them, from them to say, dude, it doesn't matter. We're not saying that it was better than because of how people looked. We're saying it is better than because of what the, what the standards of evaluation were, because of how hard people worked, because of that kind of thing. Um, you need to look past these superficial characteristics and get to the meat and potatoes. And the meat and potatoes of journalism is like reporting the stories that matter. And it's on that basis that we're saying it's better. And then he could say, okay, so you're making this elitist argument. You're saying that they were an elite because they, they were the best, because they did the job really well. Well, that's what we're saying today. And we, in this debate, everyone has agreed, and it's true. Douglas Murray, Matt Taibbi, the New York Times writer, and Malcolm Gladwell, they all agreed Fox News is not mainstream. They all agreed that right-wing media is not mainstream media because they all agreed to define mainstream media as left-leaning, elite media. And so he's like, this is the thing. It is elite. And amongst the people who are the best of the best at being journalists, mostly they are left-leaning. 80% are left-leaning. In the same way that in the 1960s, the fact that everyone was white, that was a great journalist, didn't prove that they were bad journalists or didn't prove that they were racist. The fact that we're all left-leaning doesn't prove that we're bad journalists or that journalism is systemically biased. Why? Because his definition of journalism is that journalism is out there to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. That's his definition of journalism. Not that it's the first rough draft of history, that it is inherently progressive, that it's inherently seeking out the oppressed underclasses and giving their stories a voice and taking those people who are in power, who are in charge, and and pricking their egos, exploding their little um, uh, truth, truthy bubbles, and and ventilating the the body politic with with fresh analysis and ideas. And so that you know, if you think of the traditional left right progressive conservative split, it's no surprise given the inherent function of journalism that it's that it's elites, the people who are doing it the best, are mostly going to be uh, people whose personal politics is much more inclined to changing the system to benefit the oppressed than it is to trying to uh, slow down change and conserve uh, what we have. Right. That's a point that uh, quite a few writers on the right have actually made over the years, um, is that one of the, this is in the version of the right that existed before the one that exists now. Um, I don't know what to call them but that there was always going to be a media bias, quote unquote, against the right, because people on the right don't, they're not drawn to the profession in the same way uh, that people on the left are on the same numbers. There are obviously exceptions, but the general rule is that people on the right will go and do, you know, small business, have a family, do this, that, that. And then people on the left may be fall into the sort of romantic aspects of activism and, being a university professor and being a journalist, uh, which 
uh, if that was his uh, his gambit, I think it is. I think I think your interpretation is quite an interesting one. Uh, so yeah, so I don't think it worked so well rhetorically. He kind of didn't yeah. get the. He but didn't. But I. Yeah. But this is yeah, what he executed. Not great, but the the theory is not a terrible one. It's not a terrible theory, but and but you can imagine why he felt like. Um, he needed to say it in a complicated way. He couldn't just come out and say, look, left-wing people are better than right-wing people in general at uh, being journalists. So uh, at the best newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the New York, the best magazines like the New Yorker, yeah, 80%, 90%, sometimes 100% of the staff are left-wing. That's... No more crazy than noticing that like tall people are better than short people at playing basketball. So in the NBA, like there's one or two short guys, but they're mostly massively tall. Uh, well, there's a Thomas. There's you a Thomas guys, Sal. you right wingers, are better at being bankers. So when you there's go an to the Thomas Sal book about how uh, every thing, every 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 industry is not like there isn't a clear cut representation across all industries. You know, certain industries get do dominated by certain types of people, yeah. and that's true for everything from garments to journalism to beer to whatever you name a thing and you're going to have a, a clustering of some kind of person defined maybe by race maybe by culture maybe by language maybe by political viewpoint. ideology in this case yeah political yeah, ideology yeah. or viewpoint um, yeah. and, and the, 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 these these right wingers who, who made this point were kind of making it sort of fatalistically of like we're always going to be playing defensive because we're never going to have the mass in in uh, in, in in what's it called uh, in the mainstream the media discourse. In the, yeah, right. and and that and it's and it's and it's raging against that that actually has created some of what you might call the new right, the sort of Trumpy right of no, 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 no. We need to take back the reins of power. We can't just let them. We need to take things from them because we can't just let it be like this. Because it's, it's it's all born of this uh, fatalistic idea that the the right is doomed unless it takes some kind of wheel grabbing, plane storming action to save itself from the uh, the, the domination of these institutions. Right. But I suppose the thought there is like usually wars get started when you think like bad like the tricky wars that people lose tend to be started when you think well sure if we start now we might lose like the January 6th storm, storm the white house. We might storm the, uh, not the white house, the, the, the Congress, Capitol. the the Capitol. Um, we might lose, but if we wait five years, we're going to be even worse off because, yeah. uh, it, nature herself is against us somehow. I can't remember the guy's name. He wrote it under a, a pseudonym, but this is, this has actually been the dominant strain of thought. I think not just in the American right, but actually a lot of the global right for the past few years, which is the, uh, the flight 93 election which is that if Hillary Clinton wins this election, this was how the article was written in 2016, America as a country is finished. It's over. It's doomed. And that's why we have to elect someone who's not ideal in the case of Donald Trump yeah, yeah. because the alternative is too horrific to even countenance. And the, tr and the troubling thing is, like, I do feel like between 2024 and 2029, I don't think that's true of 2024. Uh, it could be but I don't think it has to be. But like, I kind of feel like it does kind of have to be true of 2029 in South Africa. Like if Ramaphosa and Malema, if Malema is in charge of South Africa in 2029, um, you know, the country being doomed, like, you know, the, the coffee shop in Melville, I remember sitting with Franz Grenier in this coffee shop and saying, dude, Malema can run this country 
like Mugabe ran Zimbabwe, this coffee shop's still going to be here or something like it. So in that sense, the country won't be doomed. You know, there'll still be enough people with enough money to come buy coffee here. Um, but, you know, we, we, you have to draw certain lines and, and sort of say, this counts as winning, this counts as losing. Uh, you know, I do feel like in South Africa's case, if, if uh, the policies in place keep rolling forward by 2029, it will have been like 1948. Like the, yeah. the slip from the apartheid that existed 1940, before 1948 to after 1948. Once, once you get to after 1948, you just know that you've got a generation at least, probably two. Right. Of, uh, we're, we're, we're at this at this hinge moment and the hinge swings the other way. That's how you yeah. know is by 2029 yeah. that it's swung yeah. the other way. Yeah. So, so, so these arguments aren't always wrong, but I, but I think in those instances. Although sometimes I, I do... Yeah, yeah, and also I think that part of the problem is that uh, the prevalence of that thinking has made the situation worse and more like a Flight ninety three situation because it, it justifies oh, what's what's the the phrase they always use on my favorite podcast permission structure creates the it's similar to a steam steam economy right uh, it creates a permission structure that uh, you can just behave like a complete hooligan and break all the rules and do whatever you like because. Uh, the stakes are so high. And that, of course, leads you to a position where the stakes are very high. Dude, amen. So I want to just flip back to, like, I want to challenge this by saying I I dispute the notion that it's inevitable that journalism is always more left than right. And maybe if it's true, like, I don't want to say that it's totally not true, um, but I think that there's, well, a really important argument the, to be had in the degree. I mean, and, look, the, the pushback I would have starting from those older people you were talking about, you know, like the Walter Cronkites, is that they weren't that great either. Uh, there were a lot of them who were, I mean, not fantastic. There never has been this sort of golden age. And what it means to be left has also changed. I mean, in some ways, Walter, Walter Cronkite, you could probably say, was pretty left. But in other ways, you could say that he was compared to today kind of sort of right right wing on some things well so i think even yeah, the question I mean, itself doesn't necessarily because you know what does it mean to be progressive in 2023 it means something different to what it meant to be progressive in 1823 i i i think um one of the things that Catherine graham does really well is sort of um she chronicles this period where journalism goes from being uh the journalist's like the first chief editor of the Washington Post when her dad starts publishing it, doesn't hang out with politicians. And by the time Brent Bradley, you know, when she describes Richard Nixon, she's like, dude, that's like kind of the last president who didn't hang out with, with journalists. And like no one's ever going to make that mistake again. Like, in fact, she says LBJ made the same mistake. It went back. Right, LBJ he got did it out of office. And he got hounded out of office. And no one's and, ever going to make a mistake after LBJ. Like, and Nixon got an entire like decade of pop culture targeting him as the greatest evil president who ever existed because he was paranoid and didn't trust the media. <laughs> like, so, and what does that mean? It means cocktail parties, dinners, schmoozing. It's like the sh So she describes the area, the shift from pre-schmooze to schmooze. And, um, you know, she's kind of, she really benefits from the shift uh, in some ways.
in some ways, like her husband kind of takes it to the extreme and then kills himself. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there, there are substantial shifts and some of them can be celebrated. Some of them can be in bemoaned. I take your point, your, your, your point of like, in a certain sense, the wheel of history just keeps turning and we, and we are, you know, inflation's, you know, the line that money can't buy today, what it used to be able to, and the youth don't respect the elders. That's a quote from like a mm-hmm. pre-Socratic uh, philosopher two and a half thousand I, years ago. It's I like will the same put the asterisks <laughs> on that point that uh, there, that doesn't mean that there's no variation in the quality over the years. It just means that it's usually within a certain band. Yeah. Like so, and, and I think I think it is fair to say that um, the quality had that there have been that that people are complaining with good cause and, about a drop generally in quality, and that. The people complaining then, good, with good cause about a range of media outlets that used to be centrist um, becoming yes, overtly partisan, uh, and that that's and and, the, and, and that is hard to, to think of a good centrist. And the biggest complaint is like, where is there in America, for example, uh, an outlet, be it newspaper or television program, that commands a massive audience? And that doesn't uh, go one way or another. And the answer, honestly, is things like Joe Rogan, um, in the sense that that guy uh, loved Bernie Sanders and loved lots of right-wing talking points uh, and dudes. Um, but you know, calling him news—is that journalism? That's the question that I keep coming back to. Like, what is journalism? And I kind of feel like, um, again for different reasons to the octopus poetry and the Margot, the, the hot blonde babe with her boobs kind of almost poking out through the white foam while she sips champagne and discusses collateralized debt obligations. You know, there are good reasons to say that those kinds of uh, entertainments that are trying to help get information like sugar to help the medicine go down don't really qualify as journalism. Um, I think there's so much entertainment of a different kind in long-form podcasting, calling it journalism, I'd be really feel weird about calling this journalism. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd not feel that comfortable either. <laughs> like, we do some journalism. Like, the Daily French show feels like journalism, and the Daily French writing feels like journalism. This, uh... <laughs> mm. So, can I just get back to this? So, Malcolm Gladwell defines journalism as comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable you know comforting the afflicted holy moly let me tell you who comforts the afflicted you know um here in russia like the poet eugene and yegan who died 100 years ago the composer tchaikovsky uh you know i watched an opera last night that was comforting the afflicted you know um in 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 south africa the guys who composed the song jerusalem you know, they were comforting the afflicted. You know, like people who sing hymns comfort the afflicted. That's not journalism. Uh, comforting the afflicted is is like is is what a lot of music does, uh, and a lot of art. And and if you just think about it, like to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, just doesn't sound like how did that ever get to be a common definition of journalism? And it's very much the common definition of journalism. It's the first time when I was in America that I heard someone define journalism. In New York, it was like that. And it actually comes from um, an article published in 100 years ago 
uh, it was a column when yellow print journalism happened. You know, I've often talked about how when when uh, hot metal press first came to, to being, newspapers got much much cheaper and, and much more prolific, and um, you got yellow belly journalism. It was this, you sort of uh, slur term for journalism that tended to be very jingoist, uh, particularly very pro-American, very pro-war, very anti the enemy. The enemy at the time was Spain, and um, kind of not necessarily very keen on on telling the truth, and lots of cartoons demonizing the enemy, and uh, but some very perspicacious, interesting stuff. And and, and Pulitzer, you know, published a, a lot of these really bad publications, and out of a sense of uh, shame, you know, established the Pulitzer Prize to try and uh, reward people who do something different to just um, uh, meme to producing that which is going to get the most uh, purchase uh, on the on the square in, in the form of like meme pamphlets anyway uh, so uh, observations by mr doodley was was this um, uh, was this column and and in it, Mr. Doodley says, you know, the newspaper, it's written, I'm going to do an Irish accent. It's written in this like, uh, you know. Got all the accents today. Funny slang. Uh, everything is spelled I-V-R-Y-T-H-N-G. There's like no R's. The newspaper does everything for, no, it's sorry, it's American drawl. The newspaper does everything for us. It runs the police force and the banks, commands the ministry, controls the legislature, baptizes the young, marries the foolish, comforts the afflicted, afflicts the comfortable, buries the dead, and roasts them afterward. It's actually an Irish bartender, so it should be the newspaper does everything for us. It runs the police force and the banks and commands the militia and controls the legislature and baptizes the young and marries the foolish and comforts the afflicted, afflicts the comfortable, buries the dead and roasts them afterwards. Sorry, had to do it with Irish. Um, dude, it was a satire. I mean, if you read the whole piece, it's totally satirizing the notion that this guy is expecting so much from the newspaper that he's expecting the newspaper to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted and the newspaper to marry the people because it's announcing their marriages and the newspaper to baptize people because it's announcing the baptism. It's, it, it, it's a stupid, it stupid, me. stupid idea. And it's it survived as a meme as the <laughs> defining, like Malcolm Gladwell was like, when I heard that, that's when I knew I wanted to be a journalist. He, his whole life is like the wrong side of a, joke <laughs> and i really respect this, him I'm, i don't mean dude, to this reminds me of of the voltaire quote uh, what is it i will i may disagree with what you say but i'll defend your right to say it right yeah. i cannot remember the exact context i need to go and read it again but as far as i understand he was being pretty much completely insincere <laughs> when he said that <laughs> and that it was uh he was kind of almost sort of the case kind of proved the opposite point in the specific example, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a warning to us all that uh, context. <laughs> context, <laughs> woo! It's a powerful tool. <laughs> oh, when you take it away, especially, it's like, uh, it's like lunch. You know, you might think life is kind of dull and difficult with lunch, but like, take lunch away now. Take away breakfast and lunch. Ooh. 
You're going to miss it. <laughs> You're going to feel it right in your middle. Indeed. Indeed. So, 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 you know, first draft draft of history, take that with a pinch of salt. Afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Oh, I think it, yeah, I think it really gets you in a pickle um, to, to think that well, way. Well, what's definitely true is that whether that is journalism or not, as you say, an awful lot of people think that is journalism. Yeah, I think I read somewhere this poll. It was like that. That was that was like the the memeiest or second most famous um, sort of aphoristic definition. So um, Douglas Murray's comeback, uh, which uh, is uh, I remember from my you know I have the I have the entire collected works of nonfiction published by George Orwell. Wonderful gift given to me by Elena um, is uh, Orwell's uh, description of journalism. His definition of journalism. Which of course uh, is better than the other two. All <laughs> uh, says journalism is telling people the truths they do not want to hear. I mean, that's a lot of a lot of what Orwell wrote, as far as uh, I'm aware, was really kind of just almost directed at the left, of which he was a part of, criticizing really stupid things on the left. The, uh, was it? Wasn't it him who came up with the phrase about the the sort of sandal wearing uh, socialist who, yeah, vegetarian socialist who just annoys everyone and will make sure that socialism never happens. Um, and I, 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 it was so funny because he was he was describing in the past the future, which was Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> <laughs> who who had to do this drastic image change because he literally did used to just wear sandals and socks and go around pubs irritating people <laughs> yeah no dude and i think i think that i think it's a brilliant i think it's a brilliant definition because on its face because of things it's so obvious one doesn't need to explain i think the trouble with it if they you know I, I don't want to uh, hagiography Orwell any more than is ever necessary. Um, I think he's too good to be suffer my praise, uh, in a sense. You know, he's um, he is. You know, I think I think seeing it in the context, at least of his own life, as you as you've as you've started, that's the right move. You know, Orwell dies this like nineteenth century death of tuberculosis. Um, you know, lonely and alone. Like, basically, he dies of neglect. You know, at that stage, no one was dying of TB because you didn't need to die of TB unless you were, like, a homeless person. Um, you know, like, you know, someone with mental health issues, we would now say. And um, there is something kind of fatalistic about that description of journalism's innate function. It's kind of it's like a view that journalists will have to spend all of their lives uh, driving around in an armored car because people will be throwing things at them. Yeah, exactly. And I'm kind of sympathetic to that because I have it's always been my position that like journalism is like being you know I feel like a foot soldier in the in the battle of ideas. I feel like an infantryman. I think I've risen up the ranks. But like you know, it's very few people. You know, it's like one of the criticisms of Russia. It's like, are you sending? 45 year old men to the front line if you are seems like you're probably getting something wrong like society somehow it seems to make sense to send in late teenagers and 20 year olds and 30 year olds to die 
in a way that it doesn't seem to make sense to do that with 40 year olds 50 year olds and 60 year olds like um you know journalists like uh, soldiering in that sense is a younger man's game uh, i don't know you you know quite a lot about the american and british i don't you know how many how many dudes that are actually firing weapons in anger in iraq uh or afghanistan were over 50 years old you pretty much know and i think some special forces people sometimes well not special forces people, but you do you do get the occasional like contractors contractors for sure contractors you get uh like the occasional commander who puts himself in a lot of harm's way by like basically riding at the front but yeah it's not it's not common um and that's why i remember the shock when uh uh during the battle of bangui in 2013 um a south african private was captured by the rebels who was 48 <laughs> or something like that <laughs> and and probably tubby i'm sorry yes <laughs> <laughs> so 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 i think that you know i it's very attractive to think of journalism as like okay dude it's something to do in your 20s and 30s like like flipping playing rugby or soccer like you know lionel messi 35 years old or whatever it's like okay it's time to retire buddy um like if you're still a journalist when you're 40 years old you've probably you know like something's gone wrong it's like you need us okay maybe you've got another five years left but you really need to start thinking about moving on i quite like that idea um i think that fits really well with orwell's definition because the contrast is you know you can say things that people don't want to hear but they recognize that they need to hear it so you'll be rewarded but it's so tense and there's so much backlash inevitable and stuff that um but the the reason it doesn't work is because to be an effective journalist as Matt Taibbi said you need to be credible and the only way to establish credibility is to keep getting it right over a long period of time and when you get it wrong to be honest about that and analyze what mistake was made and sincerely and, and attempt to correct that mistake and uh and so you know we we only know these names like outside of Greta Thunberg and it's one of the problems with the whole phenomenon it's like it's hard to think of anyone that anyone would take seriously that is uh in their 20s or or early 30s uh it takes a long time to establish that track record and it's only once you've established that track record in a sense that you feel that which so and how to resolve that i think you know the economist is onto something like if you have a newspaper where everyone writes anonymously then the thing with the track record is the newspaper and you can have editors like generals and lieutenant you know you can have commanding a commanding staff that's older and they they manage the journalists uh in order to maintain the institutional memory that's necessary to pass on the the excellence but the guys that you know the people that are going out um to parliament to the townships to the rural areas to the the streets outside the stock exchange to the boardrooms inside and so on to get information to analyze and report um are young and they burn out and uh they move on to something else uh that would kind of i think the only you know it kind of feels like that could theoretically work but the market's never going to bring that about so um you are kind of stuck with with an idea that uh doesn't quite fit in with the constitutional liberal free market democratic system 
that turns out to be the best way of running a country for all the other purposes. You know, those those things, liberal constitutional democracy, it's good for the market. It's good for producing lots of goods. It's good for decentralizing power. Um, so you could say it's good for the first estate and the second estate and the third estate, right? The first estate is like decentralizing power, splitting that. The second estate is like something to do with the esteem world, uh, you know, norms and conventions. Like it allows for, certainly if you think of second estate as just being the church, liberal constitutional democracy is good at like uh, tamping down on religious intolerance and warfare. Uh, don't know any. Um, the third estate, you know, business, okay, good at dealing with that. But the fourth estate, this uh, societal self-analysis, it's a tough fit. It's a tough fit. Uh, to think that journalism's job is to tell you what you don't want to hear. Because after a while, aren't you going to just stop coming back? Um, yeah. Either as the listener or as the speaker. You know, someone's going to give that up. That's just doesn't sound sustainable. I mean, you know, maybe what you want to hear is important sometimes, like it because it might actually be true. <laughs> and... Yeah, but in that competition over time, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, if you think of like spending time with your family as like, okay, it's not fun, but it's important. That just sounds like a recipe for eventually leaving your family. Like I think that sometimes, mostly when I hang out with my family, it's, it's, it's jolly good fun. But, you know, if someone's really sick, if someone's, your grand's dying of cancer or something, uh, what are you going to say? I'm doing this because it's fun? No, you're going to say I'm doing this because it's important. You're going to give that argument. But if that's every day, you know, some guys saying every day I go home, I don't really enjoy it. You know, going home to the wife and kids is like, it's tough. That's a tough call. I don't think, I'd, that doesn't sound like a marriage that's going to last necessarily. Maybe it's just going through a like bag wicket and it changes. But, you know, if, if that's like what it is, you're in and you're out, oh, that's tough. So, um, so I think, you know, I think it is a formula for the good die young which which all himself lived out. Uh, and it's unresolved in that sense. But I don't know that I can do any better. Can you do better? No. <laughs> what, then Orwell and Malcolm Gladwell and all these other people? Well, you can so. do better than Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, I, dude, I really do think <laughs> that Malcolm Gladwell is better than me right. as a writer in almost every way. But um, uh, setting out to affect the comfortable... <laughs> And comfort the afflicted, I think, is just um, not a, not the best possible formulation of a practical argument to orient a career. I don't know. How about um, telling each of the other estates what they need to know to function in a way that actually is useful for people in general? That's good. I like that. In a way that is useful is doing a lot of work because <laughs> yes, for, yes, a lot of because it means you can't be you can't be too all well in you can't be too like rubbing in your face all the things you don't want to hear um and you can't be too margot robbie in a bathtub explaining cdo's too entertaining uh it means that you've got to constantly be kind of searching out uh different ways of of getting the medicine down sometimes more straight sometimes with a little bit of a quirk uh, and that the test is, is it getting through? Um, 
and and uh but so what was the first part T- telling the states Communi- how communicating communi- information to the other estates that is useful for them to know for them to work properly for society basically right. i think that's good i mean it does um it does kind of put the personal interest story in a like it's only val- valuable derivatively right i i think a lot of journalists want to say you know if i write a story about uh the homeless guy um at the traffic light uh i've been encountering him kind of once a week for five years and i decided to take a photo and ask him a couple of questions and put it out there he told me the story like that's valuable in and of itself like someone might draw some inference out of it about how to change policy um but i just think it's important for people to see each other uh, and not for any other reason, you know, there are, I'm not denying that the other things are also useful, but I don't want to say that that's the reason that I'm doing it because in part, yeah, yeah, you don't want to wipe away people's humanity and say, oh, okay, this homeless person is a, you know, he's a, he's a symbol of a system or something like that. Yeah. And I, or, or even if I don't say that, I don't want it to be the case that as a journalist, the only reason the story matters is because he is a symbol of a system. Right. Uh, and not just because if, it's just kind of an interesting story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think so good I definition, know. but it's got that challenge. What, what what I said, but also some entertainment sometimes, <laughs> which I think is um, not the perfect word I would use entertainment. But there's there's something about a story like that. Uh, I don't know if to call it entertainment because that sort of makes you think of. I guess it can make you think of a drama or something or something not real. But. Um, there's something there is something engaging about just reading about other people's lives, particularly when they're very different from your own. Absolutely. There's something uh yeah, I suppose we transportative, who knows? Communicative, human. I uh and I think that is valuable, and I and I think that it I think that it it must count sometimes as journalism. Even if sometimes it's poetry and sometimes it's a painting, you know. And you don't want to. It's a really hard thing. I think journalism is like a hard thing to define. I'm not sure that I'm in any better place. But I've given three uh, classics. I think you've given a, a really good working hypothesis. Like if 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 when in doubt, one has to have some kind of way of explaining oneself to oneself. Um I think that uh, there's enough there to do that. Um, but I kind of do think, you know, um, drinking game, app here, uh, take a shot. Uh, I, I thought I one of the things that, that for, changed... For our listeners in, who, who can't see, um, Gabriel is currently clubbing himself with a seal. Um, when, when I was a student, one of the... Um, ideas that really helped me i i really wanted to end the conversation um and uh you know i thought like the 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 most exciting thing you can do is sort of just pull put a full stop at the end of some debate like let's you know say whatever needs to be said so that we never ever have to talk about race again um uh, would have been wonderful to me and and that is still in some sense like an emotional pull like i'm not going to pretend that 
if a genie came and said he has a magic wand, where would it would be nice? <laughs> but Appiah um, sort of made this argument that, like, an inherently liberal idea or enlightenment idea is that the conversation never ends. Um, now, it's important to, to finish the sentence and that it does progress. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people who want to get into the conversation never ends thing sort of make this very sort of jejun move of like, you know, as long as someone's moving their lips and uh, words are coming out, then it's like worth it. Um, and so the tactic of distracting people from an issue by talking about some other, other issue that's clearly much more trivial, um, in that never really counts in those people's books as um, something a journalist shouldn't do. Because to, to just articulate the notion that someone is distracting someone else, you know, that someone's using their platform to distract the public, um, requires making a value judgment about which story is more important than which other one. And if you're kind of like a nihilist about such value judgments, you're like anything's important and it's all kind of equally important or it's all up for debate and we should never stop the debate. What's more important? And uh, it's a bit sort of postmodern, isn't it? It's very postmodern. Uh, it kind of it, it puts journalism up there with, a, you know, in a sense, a kind of poetry. Um, and uh, and to be sure, in poetry, you know, there were criticisms of people, you know, doing cut up verse. And it's like, well, this is distracting from what we need to do, which is sonnets. And it's like, no, dude, there's no such thing as an art that's a distraction from another kind of art. Um, but really, there is such a thing in journalism as distraction, uh, I would say that it, well it's objectively the case and i've happened to notice it um but uh you know i think it's uh it's tough to hold on to um i i kind of feel like just i'm i'm i didn't want to do this but like i will say if i were to define journalism i think one way is to define it negatively i remember rian doing this he said sort of um, if you don't believe in objective in objectivity, like if you haven't come to terms with the fact that there is one world, uh, and that in the world there are facts, uh, you know, and that there that concept is distinct from opinions, um, then you don't ever get to be a good journalist. You can be lots of things, but you can never be a good journalist if you don't believe in objectivity. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you'd think that that would be a low bar to reach to, you know, believe in the world as a thing that exists. <laughs> but right, surprisingly but a lot, no, not. <laughs> a lot of people don't. And, and I think my, the only caveat to add to Rian is like, you know, so people can be good journalists, um, you know, three columns out of four. And then they just get to that one where they write about a topic where, where in that domain they don't believe in facts. Right, like um, the New York Times. Yeah, and then they and then they fifty percent of the time best reporting on the planet. Fifty percent of the time, what the hell is this? <laughs> so I don't know. I, I'm I've I've sort of I'm a bit. Uh, it's it's the end of the show, and um, I kind of want to put a bow on it, but but I can't because it's too hard. But anyway, I think I was trying to say that. 
that the conversation never ends is uh, it's a dangerous idea because you can you can use that phrase to to think that like we we figure out something um, serious. And it was up for debate, and then you know there was a kind of exhaustive debate, and now it's been figured it out, and it's been conclusively proven one way. And then someone wants to keep the de- reintroduce the debate by sort of you know uh, saying, "Look, this is not a distraction. Uh, I'm not going backwards. Uh, I'm just uh, okay, continuing well, the conversation." The evidence in favor of the heliocentric system is rather weak. Dude, well, that's my point of view. <laughs> you don't need to convince me that uh, someone who writes in a newspaper in favor of the sun is at the center of the planet is wasting our time and distracting us. I'm fine with that. Uh, so I'm just saying, like, the conversation always keeps going is, to me, an, an organizing principle. But I've managed to reconcile that with the notion that that doesn't mean you get to say whatever you want an abandoned right. a factual yeah, basis yeah, yeah. of analysis and a value-based judgment on whether something is fit to print or not. Um, I think that you can have both. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's um, a little bit like the Orwell thing. It's there's a tension there. There are edge cases. There are always going to be edge cases. There are always clear cases. Like let's not write about the heliocentric view of the world. There are always going to be edge cases. Is it worth publishing this or that? I don't want to think of examples because it's going to upset me too much. Um, but, you know, I think that that's uh, part of what still keeps me going a little bit is 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 um, is being excited by seeing that edge move, and maybe that takes us back to the DA. Like um, the the most boring thing about my job, your job too, is that it involves um, trying to help meme the idea that it's better not to be a racist, uh, that it's better to treat people based on what they do rather than, you know, what phenotype they, they have in appearance, what they look like. And that's really, really boring in a certain way. Because, because you know, you're they're already w- a believer because it just seems so obvious. It's so obvious. And like, even if you, you know, if you're like a, you're a believer, but you've like uh, engaged in the arguments, it's been a while since there was a good new argument. You know, in the time of 120 years ago uh, in Berlin University in the 1880s, I I think it was fascinating. I think there was really interesting ideas on the table, very interesting racist ideas, very interesting non-racist ideas, very interesting, you know, um, different kinds of racism, different kinds of racialism. Um, and um, you know that in in a certain sense, I've got some sympathy for 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 those early racists, like for the early communists. You know, it's like, well, who really knows? We haven't tried it out yet. Um, but now it's not just that we've tried it out; it's also that like the interesting debates have sort of been had. Like, I don't know. I keep looking for like interesting edge cases that, that you know had this long chat about. Like, anyway, Japan and Germany. It's pretty boring. It's intellectually pretty boring um, because there's so little that's really up for debate. Um, But the conversation goes on. And part of what that means is like you need to get from the point where it's like, okay, well, we agree on this. Now let's implement something. 
you know, and that's already been settled, you know, in our in the household. It's like you, you know, when you have tea with people, you you kind of treat them with respect as people. Uh, and if you're going to treat them a bit differently, it's going to be based on other things. And at work, a lot of places at work are like that, a lot of places are not. But it's like, okay, well, let's try that with ESCOM. You know, like this whole country is making electricity. Like, let's try and make electricity in a new way. And, um, uh, and a hundred years after ESCOM is producing electricity in the most maximum for money, value for money way that it can, like a hundred years after empowerment really finally gets going at ESCOM. You just know that no, it's, no one's going to be debating whether we should be buying electricity from people based on the color of their skin. You know that one would hope. I'm I'm so confident. Like that feels not quite like hope to me. You know, I don't really hope that if I throw, if I drop an apple, it's gonna gravity's gonna make it hit the ground. It's just that's that's how things work. Um. And if you just let flipping, you just let it happen, it's going to stop being interesting to want to go back to the system that didn't work. So, you know, journalism doesn't, for better and for worse, have this connection to politics. And the connection is this, you know, what's interesting to debate is partly determined by what questions we don't have enough information to answer. And so there you've got investigative journalists, you know, trying to look in the rubbish bin to see what's left behind. And partly what's interesting to debate is just the next step in whatever practical argument society is in. So if we're still at the stage in 20 years where we're imposing more race-based laws, it's still going to be interesting socially to debate the alternative of non-racialism. Even if every bit of intellectual interest has already been evaporated in the desert of this, you know, mindless wasteland. Dystopian nightmare world, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's still going to be really interesting because we haven't tried it yet, you know. And so in that sense, the conversation... Uh, you know, every single day it goes on. Mm. New problems. That's a, that's a nice kind of, I would say, sort of at least slightly open-ended point in which to move to recommendations. Uh, I have one. I'll go first. I'll go first because I've talked about it. Dude, this monk debate. I'm going to pop it back okay. right Monk now. debate. Check it out. It was a goodie. It was and 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 really just I you know I just want to say my caveat for this monk debate. Like, please, when you give it a listen, like I think that you should consider the possibility that that Malcolm Gladwell was kind of smarter than the audience. I've I've made fun of this afflict the comfortable thing. Like, I really want to say, um, supposing that he's right, um, that this isn't inher inherently, and it connects back to my political point. Supposing that journalism is supposed to be taking some political conversation forward and trying to get society to, to test out ideas in practice. Um, you know, you're back in the world where you might think that there's a little bit of a left-wing left -wing bias, progressive bias in journalism. 
uh, functionally, institutionally, if, given, you know, if it was properly meritocratically run, that uh, there'd be more lefties than righties. And I think that might be right. I don't know. I, I just, I want you to, um, I, I don't think it's an interesting video to watch to just go and bash Gladwell and celebrate Douglas Murray. I think Douglas Murray does a great job and it's very exciting. And Matt Tahibi sort of speaks in a, a kind of um, very relatable dude next to you playing video games kind of way. Um, that's and, and has important facts to relay. Um, but I think, you know, listen with a sympathetic ear, ear to the left-wing side. It, as long as you define mainstream as, as not Fox News, you're definitely stuck in this world where the mainstream is going to be left-leaning. Like this kind of just falls out of the definition and it's sort of weird... You know, it's like, okay, well, you guys, anyway, you guys are prepared not to call yourselves mainstream. You've, you've, you've given that up uh, and you're prepared to not call yourselves elite. You've given that up. Well, we're going to just enjoy it. Like we are elite and we're mainstream uh, and we're left. That, that, that's a kind of, that seems like a cheap way um, to go about it. Maybe, maybe there's something in what he's saying that, you know, kind of gets to explaining why Fox News is willing to not call itself mainstream or elite. You know, um, maybe it has to do in part with the sen a sense of insecurity, a sense that they do think that they're not as good. Maybe. I don't know. Give it give, give it a watch. I think it's a really interesting uh, debate. Yeah, I, on that very last point, I actually have some thoughts, but uh, I'm not going to give them today. Um, my recommendation is the film Greyhound, which came out in 2020, starring Tom Hanks, directed by Aaron Schneider. Uh, I really loved it. I showed it to my girlfriend who's not super into war films and she thought it was pretty fun and intense. It's a story of a ship captain in sort of middle of the Second World War, just after America's joined the war. He's an American ship captain and he's guiding uh, two British destroyers and a Canadian corvette uh, to protect a convoy crossing the Atlantic. And they are hunted by a wolf pack of German U-boats. And like, it's based on a book, which I can't, I've got the name of now, um, which is actually kind of all about leadership. And uh, apparently most of the book is like an internal monologue. I've never read it, but this is what I've heard about it. And uh, so it was thought to be very difficult to adapt into a, into a movie. But Tom Hanks is great. Um, half the movie is just a close-up of his face, basically, and him shouting uh, directional um, numbers on like a compass uh, for where the ship should go. Um, and it's it's a really good time. It's a short movie. It's like 90 minutes, 96 minutes, 80 minutes of actual like run time in terms of not credits. And it's also kind of quite realistic as far as I understand um, for what that experience would have been like for a ship captain. You really sort of feel the tension and the, and the, the, the cold and uh, the stress on the human beings involved, which, which I think is very cool. Dude, can I just say... On submarines, I saw this thing, I think in the New York Times, about like the Russians have um, this new uh, nuclear torpedo. Yeah, it's a Neptune, I think it's called. We talk about the continent destroying one. And it's going to create like radioactive ocean swells. Yeah, so it's not finished, but uh, it's been sort of kicked around. What does that mean? Idea. My understanding is that water <laughs> is like the most anti-radioactive. Like if you really want to, you know, just 
like you you drop some like radioactive stuff in a swimming pool and it's gonna like the Geiger counter is gonna go way way down because water is amazingly good at absorbing radioactivity. That's the I whole reason that nuclear power plants get flooded by water when the reactors. The problem uh, is I that think, if it's I too think, hot, think, it's going to evaporate the water. Yeah, but water, like, how are you going to create a radioactive... radiation to the bottom? I think that's yeah. how it works. Um, might be something to do with the sand. I don't know. I've heard about this thing. It don't just really sounds like rubbish to me. <laughs> yeah, it does. I don't think this thing is a thing that exists or probably ever will exist. I think that there may be a program to build. There such is a definitely thing. a thing that exists called. I mean, what the Russians announced was like a um, a, 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 a drone that goes in the water, and like its official purpose is to like is scientific research. It's like a a, a fast moving radar thing, like. That did like you this footage of that. That's the thing that they use, and they're like, This is a this is a nuclear assault weapon that's going to create ocean swells that contaminate the whole east coast. And when I say they, not the Russians, anyway, I'm I'm I, I just wanted to check with you because I don't know that much about nuclear, but I've always understood that the point of water is to contain radiation and connect so, it to your so, Tom Hanks. Yeah, uh, yeah, if if it does work, I think it's something to do with like the sand and debris in such a thing in, in in the in the wave rather than like the actual water so so there's tiny little particles of sand that are slightly radioactive and like one percent of them get caught by the waves and like washed onto shore like how much new sand are the waves washing onto shore how can any of this make more sense than to just drop a bomb yeah no <laughs> Bombs and missiles, I think, are the uh, preferred way. Um, especially, especially missiles out of submarines, rather than trying to. Yes. Get yeah. No. Yes. That. I mean, that's that definitely exists. But anyway. Okay. Uh, okay. Let us call it to a close there. So uh, all I can say is, um, while you're thinking about what journalism is, keep the flag of liberty flying. <laughs>